You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. This session was originally broadcast on September 1st, 2023. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to something we haven't done for a while, which is a science discussion with Jonathan Borad and myself and Nick Merzen and uh, and so on. Um, we thought this time we would talk about a subject that just came up recently that um, is kind of abstract, but I thought it'd be interesting. It's the hypo-ruliad. So uh, otherwise known as do we live inside a black hole or what would it like be like to do so, maybe. Um, and uh, so reminder to people, the ruliad is this thing which is the entangled limit of all possible computations. But computations, one of their features is that they can kind of run as long as they want. There are Turing machines that run arbitrarily long and don't halt and so on. And the question is, well, what happens if we lived in a world where all computations are a finite length, where all computations eventually halt? Uh, what would that be like? And so I kind of view this as being a little bit like the flatland analog of three dimensions. You know, normally we live in three dimensions, but um, uh, imagine what it would be like if you were a two-dimensional critter. And, uh, you know, there's a, a book called Flatland that mostly seems to be about the social order of polygons, but that's uh, that's a different thing. Um, so meanwhile, Jonathan has a hypothesis that he's floated, which is the kind of the ruleal relativity hypothesis that basically says whether you're in the ruliad, the hyper ruliad, where one can do, where one has oracles for computations as well as ordinary computations, or whether one's in the hypo ruliad, where all computations terminate, that somehow it will look the same to some some type of observer. So, Jonathan, do you want to do you want to start off commenting, attacking, disagreeing with, agreeing with, or whatever the things I was just saying? No, I, th I think that's broadly correct. I mean, it's um, okay. I, I guess, I guess, I would, I, I would phrase it as, which is quite similar to how you would, how you formulated it, as you know, if we assume that we exist in a whatever that our universe is some Turing computable fragment of reality, and we look at some hyper, you know, we look at some hypercomputational process, would what we see be fundamentally different to what a uh, you know a primitive recursive an observer living in a primitive recursive fragment of reality would see looking at our physical universe. Um, you know, and if there is a difference, what would be the essential difference between what that observer would perceive, between what those two observers would perceive? Um, and right. I guess so. The what, what the thing you're characterizing as the kind of rule of relativity hypothesis would be the hypothesis that actually what they would see is a, is is the same. Is or, okay. But the important like. thing is we have a tractable example here because in the in the world of a hypo observer and a you know a, a primitive recursive observer that is something we can actually you know we with our own you know computational hands can actually get our hands on so to speak the hyper case we don't think we can explicitly get our hands on so i think the thing we want to do is to look at what is the answer to that question what does the ruliad look like to a hypo observer so to speak and um uh, and what is the world of the pure hypo world? What is it like? So I, I guess we can imagine, you know, we let's imagine that we have. Okay, let's do a little bit of a review of what happens in the hypo world. 
My assumption is that every causal graph terminates. Do you think that's correct? Uh, yeah, I th I, yes, I think so. But now let's just play that out for a moment more, because in, in metamathematics, we are thinking of the hypo-rulial case as being decidable theories only. But yet there's a bit more to decidable theories, I think, than the termination of causal graphs. Is that true or not? So, I mean, let's say you have Boolean algebra, which is a decidable theory. What does that mean? It means that there is a guaranteed finite computation that determines, rather boringly, truth or falsity for a Boolean expression. But can we think about that in terms of the same so, kind of dynamics. So, so the, the, what you, what I think you're what I think you're hitting on there is this fundamental distinction in term rewriting systems between normalization between normalizing systems and strongly normalizing systems. So, uh, you know, okay, so okay, Boolean algebra, decidable theory. Notably, that does not that certainly does not mean that if you build a multi-way system, uh, you know, f f just applying uh, Boolean algebraic transformations on some initial expression, that every multi-way path terminates in finite time. You know that every that every multiway path normalizes. All it means is that there exists a normalizing path, not that every path normalizes. Maybe we should uh, see this explicitly. Should we? Sure. Should we look at this? Um, yeah. The. Do you want to? Do, do, do you want, you want to, me? Do you want yeah, me to run something? You can, if you can drive. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Hang on. Sorry. Let me, uh, let me change my setup here. I've got a bunch of random notebooks open. But by the way, I just I want to comment for folks on the live stream. If people, if we talk about things where nobody knows what the heck we're talking about, you're welcome to ask, and we'll try and explain. <laughs> the, um, uh, oh, whatever. Okay, I don't think I have it as a documentation example. That's what I was checking, but oh well. Um, one second. Okay, can you see a? Untitled yep, six. Yes. All right. Cool. Uh, right. So, um, do we want to use your axioms or do we want to use standard axioms? Mm, I don't know. I mean, it might be faster with standard axioms. I, mean, I think standard might... axioms are more. It's, it's certainly more understandable with with standard axioms. Okay, let's do it. Uh, so, if we do that, um, and okay, so. All right, this is a slightly painful process. I suspect there's I suspect Nick might know better ways of doing this than that, but I'm an old-fashioned kind of person. Nick, do you have a do you want to comment on this? Do you have a no? I don't think go ahead. We had a bunch of functions, but they don't didn't end up in the same resource function repository. But for the metamathematics piece, we had a bunch of functions that turned axioms into rules and all of that. But it, but we can't really make it simple. Okay, Jonathan, okay. this is going to be very painful. What are you doing here? You're not going to do all of them, are you? Uh, no, I'll, I'll do some fragments. Uh, what, what what should we do? Maybe uh, we just let's just copy do... paste from the mathematics book. We had exactly such examples there. Okay, well, so that, that's what I was checking. I, but in 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 okay, Nick, if you can just put something in. Um... You want me let, to let me check. Did, I, I, I'm sure I, I, I'm sure I produced this as a documentation example for a multi-way operator system. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I did, I did. Okay, I've got it, I've got it. Okay, All right. go ahead. Uh, let me stop sharing here. 
This is Okay, go ahead. Uh, right. There we go. Okay, so if I run this, that should produce some kind of states graph. And so this is just the axioms of Boolean algebra being applied to an initial initial expression and x y. Yep. So it's certainly not the case that every path terminate. You know, th 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 there will exist non-terminating paths in this multi-way system. The point is that there will that, that there will that there's a difference between saying there exists a terminating path and saying that every path terminates. And decidability is simply saying there exists a terminating path. Well, a terminating path that does what? In this case, well, the, mean, that the, relates the, to expressions. These are these are all equivalent. Yeah, every I know, every. But it, it would be nice if we had something where we could see that it goes to true, for example. So, I mean, in this particular case, it won't. And if we say and xx, it'll rather trivially go to true because it'll evaluate. Right, uh, but hmm, okay, I, I I could inactivate these operators, I guess. But I why so wouldn't you, you just transform them all to to lowercase yeah, or yeah. something? Sure. Um, Let's do slash dot there, and goes to and, or goes to or, not goes to not. And then let's do, let's just check that that works if I do this. Yeah, okay. And then if I Real say- and of one comma one. That's rather trivial, because you have that as, an, as, a, as, a, uh, as a rule. Why don't you do yeah. and of, of, of x comma x, which, which doesn't obviously, which I don't think there's a rule for. There. Uh, and of x comma x equals, equals x. Well, how about equals or of x comma x? Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, we may not be able to see the true. <laughs> uh, well, how? Okay, so let's let's figure out how we see the true. What is true? How is true going to be represented in this in this thing? It'll just show up as true. I mean, hang on. We 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 can take this thing and I can just get the all states list. I guess. Uh, any of these true? Just, well, just just ask it. Just ask it. Say position of true in this thing. I'm suspicious uh, that they'll all be equal signs. I don't think any of them. I think they're all equalities. Oh gosh, you have your crazy strings thing. We are getting rid of that crazy strings thing. This is a slow progress towards multi-evaluate, which won't have any crazy strings. Well, the crazy strings are simply a byproduct of the fact that we never made uh, a general state rendering system. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, um, I know, I know. There's no, there's no. Just say flatten that and then do it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but it, it, for some reason, it wasn't finding the close bracket. But if I do, um, but in particular, if I take this and I say, oops. It's not going to be there. Yeah, it's not there. Um, okay, so let's understand what happened. Is that because we didn't go far enough in the proof, or what? Uh, yeah, probably. I, I suspect this takes more than two steps. Well, can we just? Um, well, let, let's let's just do for let's do exactly the same thing for three steps, and just don't yeah. print out the output. Yeah, yeah. If I do that, let's see what happens. Yeah. 
we are facing combinatorial explosion. But um, anyway, look, so the, so the, the underlying point is that, the, yeah, decidability is not the same thing as the causal graph being finite. Um, but so the, 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 the point, and so the point is the primitive, that saying that the thing is like a primitive recursive function is strictly, that's a, that's a stricter condition than, be, than being, a, 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 you know, analogous to a decidable theory. I agree, like, because let's just review that. I mean, yeah, sorry. the primitive recursive function is, is like we have a recursion and the recursion always, you know, the n in f of n is always going down towards zero and we have our initial conditions at zero. Right. And then, so for example, so, I was so, just playing around with nestedly recursive functions that, uh, you know, you could have a case where the function could go up instead. In other words, the n value could go up like it does in induction, for example, rather than going down, at which point you're no longer in the primitive recursive world and you need mu operators and things to know what's going on. So that, right. that was it. Go ahead. You're, so the important point is that with a primitive recursive function, it doesn't matter what the evaluation order is. It doesn't matter which path of the multiway system you take, you're eventually going to hit a normal form. Um, yes. And so, for instance, if you look at uh, terminating fragments of, uh, of like combinatory logic, or you look at terminating fragments of the lambda calculus, those are all strongly normalizing, right? Because if if you're if if you because of the because of the Church Rosser theorem, if there exists a path that terminates, then all paths right. will eventually terminate. But with a primitive recursive, and so, so you know that's analog, that's analogous to a primitive recursive function. With with oh, this ran and didn't find it. Um, with merely a decidable theory, that's not guaranteed to be true. Um, the, okay, so so let's be concrete. In the case of combinators, for example, which are actually probably which are not a decidable theory. No, the but I'm saying if, if if you look at only the terminating fragments of com of a combinatory logic, yes, um, then then you get strong normalization. I, 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 all I'm trying to say is this, this basic fact that confluence, in, so confluence plus normalization implies strong normalization. Yes. Well, you're saying, wait a minute, let me, let me check that I understand that claim. Because in combinators, for example, it's perfectly possible to have some branches terminate and others not. Right? And why is that not... So that's saying some are normalizing. I mean, and uh, let me, I mean, to pull up an example, I can just show yeah, an example sure. here. Um, okay, so here, uh, where is it? Okay, so this is a multi-way system for a combinator, and there it terminates happily, right? But now it's pretty common to have, so these are ones that all just terminate. But then somewhere here, there are ones, oh, come on. Where is this? Here we go, maybe. I think this is a case where, where it terminates, where many of the paths terminate, but some do not. Right? Which is, um, let me try and find a more explicit example here. Uh, I think I had some nice examples where, you know, for some evaluation orders, it terminates, and for some, it does not. Probably there are examples here of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, resolved must have reached its fixed point. 
Well, but I, I don't know whether this is, is this contradicting anything you're saying? I don't think it does. I mean, I think, I think we're just mm -hmm. saying that there exists, I mean, this is just a concrete example, which I, I thought I had a better example than this, where, um, oh, I see, I see every red path here isn't, oh, oh, actually, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I was confused here. Every path that has a red dot is an unterminated path. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this dot here is a nice normalizing terminating thing. And the Church Rossa property, I believe, says if it's going to terminate, there has to be a unique termination point. Right. But if it doesn't terminate, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Right. So okay, so can you can you restate your thing about the relationship between confluence, which which is the Church Rossa property, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, so the the important okay the, the point with strong normalization or the relationship between strong normalization and confluence is that it, you have to distinguish between two things, right? There's local confluence, um, which is so okay. The basic point is when you talk about confluence, you can either say I have two paths and they diverge after one step, you know, and, and any such branch pair eventually merges. But I can yep. also take what in general is a stronger condition that I can have two branches and they diverge for an arbitrary amount of time, and then they eventually reconverge. Okay. Um, well, and, and I assume that the converge after an arbitrary time is the confluence property. Right, right. And so this is the distinction between confluence or local confluence. Okay, And fine. the point is that when you have strong normalization, then you have, uh, there's this result, which is uh, in mathematical logic called Newman's lemma, that says that uh, confluence and local confluence are the same in that case. So, so strong normalization means everything always terminates. Is that right? Yeah. That it, so so yeah, exactly. So normalization means that there exists a normal form. There exists some uh, some rewriting path where you get an expression that can't be rewritten any further. Yep. Strong normalization says that all rewriting paths lead to a unique normal form. Okay. So your claim is if all paths lead to a unique normal form, then local confluence is true, which means that every branch pair must resolve after one step. Is that right. correct? Right. Is that obvious? Um, if it's I mean, going to, if all paths are going to converge. Oh, yes, it's, it's sort of obvious that you have to have some way to converge after one step. If all paths will always converge. Well, I mean, let's look at an example. Let's look at an example. Here's an example. No, what the heck's going on here? Well, here, let's look at this example. This is an example where all paths converge eventually. Right? So now the claim would be something that frankly doesn't appear to be true, which is that every path, every branch pair, well, it doesn't seem to, oh, no, it doesn't seem to be true. I mean, look at look at that node there. That but, node. Wait, no, hang on. Sorry, local confluence doesn't say that they have to converge after. That, that says that they if they diverge after what you know after one step they have to converge. Well, okay, but I mean, like the fifteen here, right? Let's zoom in a bit, or we can actually recompute this if we want to. Oh, for goodness' sake, the fifteen here. Okay, so fifteen. Diverges to 21 and another 15. Oh no, no, the I'm sorry, the 15 is just the number of number of elements. It doesn't tell you what's there. Each one of these nodes is unique. 
So it diverges there, and then it converges after one step. We're all happy. It's kind of a lattice-like thing. Now, let's look at this one here, which diverges after one step, but it takes two steps to converge again. Right. So is that consistent with what you're saying or not? Yeah, I mean, it's irrelevant to what I'm saying. It's irrelevant? Yeah, it has, as I say, the, the divergence, the, the convergence time is not relevant to Neiman's number or, or to local confluence. It's the, the divergence time is what's relevant. I'm sorry, could you explain that again? Because I didn't understand that. So, okay, so you, have, you have an expression. It can be yep. rewritten in two different ways. Yep. So you can, you can enforce the condition that, okay, you have an expression A, and then you say, I've got arbitrary rewriting paths that lead from A to B and A to C. Yep, and therefore B and C can be you know can be resolved. They're you know they can be resolved at some point in the future to some common expression D. That's regular confluence. Local mm -hmm. confluence is the weaker condition that if I rewrite A to B and A to C in one step, then B and C can be unified at some common expression D. In an arbitrary rewriting system, those are not the same property. Local confluence is a weaker condition. In a strongly normalizing system, they are the same. They are logically equivalent. I haven't quite got this, but maybe I don't need to. Then, but let's let's continue with what you were saying. So, you're saying the conclusion was there is the primitive recursive case where everything always terminates after a bounded number of steps, and then there is the decidable case where there exists a way to get to a terminating state, but there might be a way you might get lost, basically. Right. What does it mean for physics that you can get lost, so to speak? In other words, in- It means I mean, that like, you can escape to future null infinity, that would be the analog. Okay, well, let's talk about that in the context of a black hole. So in the context of a black hole- That means the normally, only on the exterior of an event horizon. What's that? It means that you're on the exterior of an event horizon. The way you define an event horizon is by saying you can't escape the future of the Okay, so the claim would be that the, the failure to be normalized is the failure to be crushed at the, event, uh, at the singularity in, in, inside the black hole. And that if you, if you choose the path that doesn't normalize that doesn't terminate i see then that's the analog of being okay so yes. so, 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 so the, the point is okay if, if we assume a if you'll pardon the expression if we assume a strong form of the weak cosmic censorship conjecture namely mm -hmm. that that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between singularities and event horizons right that you don't get naked singularities but you also don't get just like naked event horizons yep um then th then any path that you have through space-time has one of two, you know, one of two futures to it. Either it terminates at a singularity, or it can escape to future null infinity. And that's the analog of saying that in a, you know, in a multi-way causal graph, either I could terminate at a normal form, or I run forever. Okay. All right. So now, what does it mean if we're living? So, in the hypo-Ruliad, what is our definition of that? Is our definition primitive recursion, is our, or is our definition decidability? Because you're saying, so I mean, the issue is, uh, okay, hold on. Because 
the ability to escape to future null infinity. It feels like the thing that makes that not a complicated, undecidable theory is some kind of simple inertial motion. That is, not too much can be happening. Right? In other words, if 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 what happened is, you know, you could hide in that infinite future, you could hide an arbitrary computation, which is not what should be happening in a decidable theory. You shouldn't be able to hide an arbitrary computation. It's as if you either go to the terminating state or you go to a trivial loop of some kind that doesn't terminate. Because mm. otherwise, I don't understand what, you know, by the time you have a non-terminating computation, right, a non-terminating term rewriting, why can't you just do any computation there? Because that's not way, that's not the way around the implication goes, right? The, if you can do arbitrary computation, you'll get non-terminating rewriting sequences. But the fact that you get non-terminating rewriting sequences does not mean that you can do arbitrary computation. And, and so the point is that theories that are decidable but not primitive recursive are in that intermediate space where you where you have non-terminating part, you can have infinite paths, but you're you don't you're not doing arbitrary computation. Okay. Well, so so a good example of this concretely will be the S combinator case, where we know where you know it's been my sort of claim that there is the possibility of of arbitrary computation purely with the S combinator. And right. it could be, but it could be the case that the S combinator is a boring infinite system. Well, it's it's interesting, right? Because in, in a sense, of, okay, if, if I can characterize it this way, a, a, a lot of your intuition seems to be that, yeah, if something can do, if, if you get non-terminating rewriting paths, then there's probably, you know, it's a kind of computational equivalence story, right? Um, yeah. PCE would suggest if you get non-terminating rewriting paths, uh, then you then there's probably not, you know, there's probably arbitrary computation going on there. Um, right. The fact that we the fact that we have uh, decidable theories that are not you know, that are not primitive recursive in that sense, that are not strongly normalizing, tells us that can't be true always. But in a sense, well, I guess what you're probing with things like the S combinator prize is just the empirical question of how common are those intermediate cases? How common are those cases where you get, uh, yeah, non-strongly non normalizing, but non-Turing complete? Systems? Okay, so let's be even more extreme about it. Let's say that, you know, we have a tail of non-termination, okay? Tail, T-A-I-L of non-termination. Um, right. Where, where, um, uh, you know, where basically the thing is in some trivial loop. That's one way it would not terminate. And, but then, my question is: Can we, if we can number all the ways it cannot terminate, then we don't have universal computation. So, for example, something was we're just thinking about in a different connection context is if you can put ordinal numbers in correspondence with, well, maybe this is true, maybe it isn't. If you can put ordinal numbers in, in correspondence with all the possible non-terminating behaviors, then the claim would be it would be non-terminating, but not universal, maybe. What do you think about that claim? So let me give an example. That, that sounds plausible, but I need to know what, yeah. I well, let's, let's think about it. I mean, let, let's think about that. The, the question is, and this is relevant to the hyperruliad because this is life in the hyperruliad. If it is right. the case, the definition of the hyperruliad is decidability, but not necessarily finite termination. I mean, well, my okay. initial assumption. So, go ahead. Maybe it's worth us taking just a moment to be a little bit pedantic about what we mean by termination, right? Because so 
if if we I know that you're not a fan of halt states in Turing machines, but in in a sense, halt states or accept states, or whatever, were, were invented to, to resolve exactly this problem. Because so you've made the claim, which I of course agree with, that you know, in in a sense, all the in 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 the in the kind of bare metal multiway system, there is only branching. Merging is something that we have to somehow impose after the fact. And but the point is, terminate the, the notion of termination requires a notion of merging, right? It requires to be, us to be able to say. We did nothing to the state, and it stayed the same. Yes, that's um, and, and it's, so, a, it's merging. That's a time merging, right? In in many cases, right. branch hill merging, but in the case of of termination, it's merging in time and saying nothing yeah. happened. Well, so so in in the in the multi-way system function, we make this distinction between states graphs and evolution graphs. States graphs merge across branches and time, whereas the evolution graphs merge only across branches, but on the same time step. So in a states graph, so in in, in an evolution graph. There is no termination, really. Um, whereas in a states graph, you have termination because the, the graph just, you know, you end up with vertices that don't have a, an out degree, uh, don't have an out component. Um, and so I think it's just worth being a little bit careful in, in stating that, you know, in exactly the same way as notions like confluence or merging or causal invariance only make sense if you impose an equivalence function, the same is actually true of termination. And, and in a sense, although, yeah, you have Okay, this so what you're basically yeah. saying is, you know, to talk about termination as termination, you need time equivalence. But right. really what termination is, is things become boring. It's just the, uh, the same, the same, the same all over again. You know, it's just X, but, but, that, but that's But that's the same with branch equivalence, right? It's not, it's not, that's not a different problem, I would say. You know, when we say that these two branches are equivalent, what we're really saying is, you know, the, 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 they're only different in a boring sense, right? They're only different in the sense that, for instance, you know, you can read that the the, 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 the the vertices in the hypergraph are labeled differently or something. Um, yes. And and it's the same with, with termination. You're saying that these two states that are time-like separated are only different in a boring sense. I agree. I agree. And that same thing will be true with a, with a time-like singularity, right? Where you have, where space has been crushed. That What you're saying is, in the case where you can apply equivalences, Space has been crushed. In the case right. where you don't apply equivalences, you've got everything is everything is fine except that there's no difference between every point in space. Right. right, right. So, so in other words, what you're saying is that okay. So, really, the definition of the the hypo the hypo existence plus you know entity, it's not a question of the fact that they that time ends. It's really a question of the fact that nothing different ever happens in time or nothing right. different ever happens in space yes and so the reason i'm being a little bit pedantic about that is because i think that therein lies a, a component of what i think makes the rulio relativity claim plausible because the observer in the in the hypo ruliad so to speak uh has not just their state evolution function be say primitive recursive but also their state equivalence function be primitive recursive so we can so we from the god's eye you know from the turing's eye view looking down at the hyperruliad we can see oh those two states are the same the observer in the hyperruliad can't necessarily make that determination i understand so they, so they can see they might see a path that appears to go on forever and you know and be doing to, what to them look like interesting stuff and it's only to us that we can look down and say actually no it's not interesting it's boring because this this that and the that's other that's an interesting point because probably it's the case that to prove equivalence between two atoms of space for example requires the hyperruliad in other words, even in the standard Turing case, right, to prove equivalence, I think you, you can't prove equivalence from within the, within the Rouliad itself. Well, 
okay, I, I this this now I have to confess, I, I, I never know exactly what, you, what it is you mean when you talk about equivalence between atoms of space. Um, okay, fair enough. I mean, so, the, the, to, to say, okay, so your point is equivalence is in the eye of the beholder. The question is only, is it consistent to say that these two things are equivalent? Right. So, so I think, okay, so one important point that um, I think, again, is a little bit subtle uh, is that the evolution, okay, we, we typically assume that the evolution function and the equivalence function have kind of the same level of computational sophistication. Um, but there's really no reason to make that hypothesis, right? That, that, that you know, you, you could imagine that the, uh, that the state evolution function has, is either obeying a completely different model of computation to the state equivalence function, or, you know, that they're, they're, they're functions with, with different kind of bounds on their time complexity or something. And, uh, you know, in a sense, how, okay, sorry, this is a separate discussion. Actually, maybe. you're making a good point there, because the fact is, part of the claim about many of the things we're doing is, the observer is computationally bounded relative to the actual underlying physical processes. So there right. is a different, so the equivalence function is a different level of computational sophistication to the evolution function. Right, right. Um, and, and so, uh, so okay, I, I, there's a, a paper I wrote uh, like last year that kind of looked into this in a little bit more detail, but so there are definitely cases where you know, you can fix the complexity of the, of the evolution function and vary the complexity of the equivalence function and vice versa. Um, it is not yet clear whether they are completely independent. And the question of whether or not they are completely independent turns out to be an alternative way of formulating the P plus NP conjecture. That uh, in, in, in a sense, what P plus NP is really asking, in, or if you think about it in these terms, is if you fix a complexity of your evolution function, how much, if at all, does it determine the complexity of the valid complexity or the complexities of your of the valid equivalence functions and vice versa? Okay, let me let me pull that apart for a second. So, I mean, the basic issue you're saying, well, okay, walk through what NP means in the case of equivalence functions. You're saying that that an NP, comp, you know, in NP, you've you've branched out into many different possible non-deterministic paths, but at some point you have to find out what the answer is. You have to determine, right. did you get an answer? And right. that requires essentially something like an equivalence function, some kind of observer action. Yeah, so, so the, 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 the point is that choosing a, choosing a branch in a multi-way system is, computationally equivalent, is a computationally equivalent process to defining a function that equivalences all branches to that branch. Those are the, 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 those are, you, could, you, could, you can recast it in those terms. Um, and so, so really the, 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 the part of, the thing that makes that puts the n in NP is really the definition of an equivalence function on an arbitrary multi-way computation. Let me think about that for a second. Well, how, how does that relate to the quantum computation case? Well, the there you have to. Is... Sorry, go on. There... No, so that's defining the complexity of the observer in quantum computation too. Right, right. So, so the, the the point is that in quantum computation you have this slight muddle because. Typically, when people talk about complexity classes in quantum computation, they are considering only the multi-way behavior. They I know, aren't considering I know, measurement. I know, which is just wrong. But, but we know <laughs> right, that's right. wrong. I've known that's wrong for forty years. It's 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 uh, it's wrong. But, right. And, um, uh, but and, anyway, so, and so, thinking about it in those terms helps clarify that point, right? That that you know, that in a sense, the conjecture would be that you know we talked about many times that that any any speed up you get in the branching is cancelled likely by uh, by slowdown that you get in the in the merging. 
Okay, but how does that relate to the P versus MP case? Because the P versus MP case, you're saying the merging in the case of NP, the question is, is there a polynomial time merging function for NP? Is that right? right. Is that is right. that the P versus MP question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and so so in a sense, so P equaling NP would be the most extreme case of quantum computation not working. In, in that way of thinking about it, right? Uh, why, why is that? But P, why was P equal to NP would, would suggest that the, that NP re-choosing re, re the output in NP would then be in P. Right, right. Which in particular would mean that there's no benefit, you know, that-, that, that Oh yeah, there there's is, no benefit. But there's right, unconditionally but no benefit in branching. Right, but it would- it would you would be able to reconnect the branches in polynomial time, which right. you might think was good. The only problem is, well, in the end, the branching wouldn't do you any good. But but right. let's let's come back. Okay, but you're saying let, let's come back to the hyperreliad question because mm -hmm. you you've got okay. First point is you're reformulating things by saying that uh, in in the sort of ultimate God's eye view, the hyper, hyper, hyper God's eye view, everything just branches. That anything that equivalences has to be in, you know, that's in the eye of an observer at some level of the real hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that uh, that the hyporuliad are observers who can successfully. Okay. Well, what I, is I, the characterization? Again, sorry. sorry. I, I, again, I think it's worth making the following pedantic point, although I'm not, I'm not as confident about this, but I, I, I'm pretty sure this is the case. I think the space. I think the branch-like and time-like versions of merging work in opposite directions with regards to the complexity of observers. So what I mean by that is. Uh, if if you consider the limit of an observer becoming arbitrarily computationally sophisticated, then you know which is your hyper 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 Rouliad view as you were describing earlier, then you know you wouldn't need to equivalence. You wouldn't have branchial equivalences. You could distinguish everything, right? But equally, as your level of computational sophistication increased, you could begin to see patterns in you know computational threads that exist in the multiway system that you wouldn't have been able to see if you were more computationally limited. So the amount of branchial uh, equivalencing that you need to do goes down, but the amount of kind of temporal equivalencing that you can do goes up. Okay, when you say see a branch, you're talking about sort of the breaking of computational irreducibility rather than the breaking of multi-computational irreducibility. Yes. Right. So you're saying, let me try to understand that. You're saying as your computational sophistication increases, you can jump ahead in time. Right. But why, why can't you also merge branches? You you can, you just don't need to, so to speak. Because so Okay, the, the the question is what? All right, let, let's let's distinguish between equivalences that you are kind of voluntarily imposing. I'm, somehow I'm reminded of, you, of the uh, 
what was it the autonomous events that you that occurred in those that came up in those in that distributed consensus thing right but yep. equivalences that you are voluntarily imposing versus equivalences that are imposed for you by virtue of your own limitations so to speak okay so the, the, so the point is that the that the traditionally when when we've thought about these things we we've, we've tended to think about branchial equivalencing as being an equivalence that's that's imposed on us by the fact that we're computationally bounded whereas the termination notion is subtly different termination is a is a is something that is voluntarily kind of imposed by us where we say oh i can i can i can see ahead that this path is going to be uninteresting and and you know whatever i don't need to evaluate this yes well, wait a minute. So why is the branchial equivalence? The branchial equivalence, the claim is we simply can't tell the difference. Therefore, we have to equivalence the thing. So that will be the case for for spatial branching, even in space in the space-like case. Because we're 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 extended, so to speak, in space, we can't distinguish nearby events, even in the spatial, in the space-like case. Right, and 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 there and there probably is a version of that. I mean, sorry, not probably. There is a version of that for time as well, right? That, that you can imagine seeing a system, and it's like we're 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 so big and and coarse graining so much that uh, you know it, the, the, to us the system looks like it's not evolving. It's reached a fixed point, but actually there's a bunch of stuff going on that we don't have. Well, access. right, our brains are really slow. It takes milliseconds for us to you know form the next thought, so to speak. Um, right. So so, so you, you can perfectly well have a situation where you you think that a multi-way system has terminated or you know, you've reached some some normal form but actually it's just because you can't distinguish between the, the evolution steps that are going on let's be concrete about that the claim would be let's imagine that for example every 10th step it returns to the same i don't think it can do that it can't return to the same state every 10th step and still make it out not not if, not if that's not if it's the the not if the state is the entire right information. so then the question is what would it mean let's say we had we're coarse graining in time what does it mean coarse graining in space it's you know the entropy of things in space we still have many possible states consistent with some fixed coarse graining in space right. is that different in time no, I, I don't think fundamentally so. I mean, there's an interesting question there about like uh, it's sort of similar somehow in style to things like Poincaré recurrence, right? There's there's a question of when you you know if you impose a non-trivial equivalence function, can you have a system that returns arbitrarily close to its initial state and still manages to diverge and not um, right? Not so stay? so back in you know in cellular automata, I had this notion of spatial entropy and temporal entropy. So right. spatial entropy is the number of possible configurations in, you know, horizontally, temporal entropy is vertically, and there are a bunch of inequalities. But right. they're both they're both valid things to look at. And so I would imagine that suggests, yeah. So so someone someone should derive new inequalities that also account for the branchial case. Yes, that's a good point. I mean, well, let's just think about it. those inequalities are pretty trivial. They they just involve the Laplace exponent because they're basically saying if you have a um, a certain number of configurations on the, in the spatial, you know, this temporal uh, this temporal sequence can have an effect on this 
spatial sequence based on uh, uh, based on um, the uh, uh, you know just how far you can get from that from that sequence of temporal values. So I would claim it's going to be the same thing, except that there might be a different layup on exponent in the branchial direction and the spatial direction. Why is it? Is it is it not the same same argument? It might well be. The um let's see. Okay, but but so now let, let's come back to the the sort of life in the hyperruliad. So what you're what you're claiming is if you are an observer, we're saying you're an observer incapable of determining certain kinds of equivalences. I see. So for you, life's still interesting because you right. can't see that, in fact, it's just going XXXXX all the way down. Right. The, 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 in other words, yeah, the, there's some there's some regular pattern or something in the in the evolution that you're observing. But knowledge of that pattern involves evaluating functions that are not accessible to you. They're only accessible in some higher level of the hierarchy. Okay, so let, let's look at that in a, okay. Let's ask the question how that relates to proof theory and how that relates to kind of, because I think there must be an analogous thing. That is that there are things that look interesting to you if you can only do piano arithmetic. But as soon as you can do set theory, it's like this is boring. Right. Um, right. I mean, okay. So, like, like a, a a slightly trivial version of that might be. So, if if you imagine that you're in a finitely axiomatizable fragment of arithmetic, um, and so in particular you don't have an induction axiom, then induction. Then if if someone comes along and if someone you know if if someone comes along who knows how to do induction then they can produce an infinite set of what look to you like non-trivial, interesting theorems. And it's only if you know the induction axiom that you realize they're not. Right, the, that you knit them all together and realize they're all the same thing. Right, exactly. But but it, it, but to an observer in the finitely axiomatizable fragment, they all look like, like distinct, interesting theorems because the statement that they are all consequences of the same result is not accessible to you. Right. Okay, so let's take the example. I'm I'm still looping on the looping question of um, right. uh, of these tales where the thing doesn't terminate, but it doesn't terminate where the way in which it doesn't terminate, just like in the case of, in, in the trivial case we've talked about, one way in which you don't terminate is it just goes XXX all the, all the way down, right? But there are more non-trivial non-terminations that we see in Turing machines, you know, they can they can loop, they can go, you know, X, you know, they, they they can have all kinds of behavior that loops, but not in such a trivial way. Okay. So I have a question, which is can one classify the looping behaviors? And how does one relate the looping behaviors to, for example, piano arithmetic? Okay. So this would be a claim. The claim would be that the looping behaviors, certain looping behaviors are classifiable by ordinal numbers. Let's say ordinal numbers below epsilon zero. Let's say. So, for example, let, let's imagine you have the loop. I was thinking about this in terms of evaluation sequences. The loop x equals x plus one. So the claim would be that that loop is omega. Do you, do you believe that claim? That sounds right. And then that the that the loop x equals list x x 
is two to the omega. Mm-hmm. Right. So the question would be, you know, what kinds of looping behavior? I mean, is there a way of seeing that you can you can you know you can kind of you can get your arms around certain kind of looping behavior with well again this is not okay this is okay one level is what level of looping behavior can you decidedly get your arms around what level of looping behavior can you get your arms around with piano arithmetic what level of looping behavior can you get your arms around with with arbitrary Turing computation. Mm-hmm. So right. decidable, what level of looping behavior can you decidably let's think. Yeah. The case of so so if you've got just the XXX looping behavior, what does it mean to get your arms around it? It means that what does it mean? It means you have an equivalence function that correctly responds that it is equivalent. Right. So, so to just, okay, let me start by just making a, a slightly philosophical point, which is that, I, so th- this is, I would argue this is th- precisely this question is what an awful lot of debate around, you know, in the kind of modern foundations of mathematics is really all about. Um, you know, th- these, this, this, I, these ideas like, you know, the, the central idea of category theory that you shouldn't talk about equality, you should only talk about naturalized, you know, you, you shouldn't talk about objects being equal, you should talk about them being equal up to naturalized, or equivalent up to naturalized isomorphism, or the ideas in homotopy type theory around, you know, you, you shouldn't talk about equality, you should talk about identity types or something. All of these discussions are really different ways of grapple, uh, the, the foundations of mathematics are found to grapple with exactly this question of like, how, how do you classify, uh, you know, different kinds of equivalences that you can, that you can place on expressions. So in the Construct, you know, in, in in our case, ultimately we all we ultimately fall out fall back to same Q, right? We 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 kind of we we assume same Q as like our kind of ground truth base, and all of the other equivalence functions that we build on top of it that we develop are really built on top of same Q, um, because you know, in a sense, when we do hypergraph isomorphism che- checking, we reduce the things to our canonical form, and then we apply same Q on, um, and really. The, I mean, the, yeah, this idea that in category theory that you should, for instance, that you shouldn't talk about equality of or identity of objects. One way that you can recast that idea is this: is the question, well, what what if you couldn't do same Q, right? What 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 if same Q wasn't there? Then you have not you have nothing to fall back on, um, and so you so you have to use somehow a a a a, 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 a less rigid notion of equivalence. Well, the notion of equivalence you probably use is a genealogical notion of equivalence. You'd right. say. If things came from the same thing, then they're the same thing, which 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 is the notion of a critical pair lemma, right? So it, it, when you when you define a critical pair lemma, what you precisely what you're saying is these two expressions came from a common expression, and therefore by transitivity of equality, they are the same. Um, and so right. that's another way of yeah, that, that's another way of defining equivalence. But isn't that also in homotopy type theory? Isn't that this? Uh, sort of equality is is the same as equivalence type, the you know univalence axiom type thing. Right, right, exactly. So, so, so the and again, the 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 kind of multi way way of, of recasting that would be to say that the notion of equivalence in time, i.e., where you're connecting 
states by um, evolution edges and the notion of equivalence in branchial space, i.e. where you're connecting states by uh, branchial edges, there's no a priori reason to believe that these two notions of equivalence are the same. Univalence is the same that they are in some sense. Uh, and, and, and so things like the notion of critical pair lemmas, the idea that if I rewrite A to B, that's a proof that A equals B, but also if I rewrite A to B and A to C, then that's a proof that B equals C, and that those two are the same notion of equality, that is a non-trivial statement that necessitates the notion of equality induced by temporal evolution and the notion of equality induced by state equivalence to be the same notion of, 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 um, of equality. And that statement is really the univalence axiom. And how does that relate to the intuition about P versus MP? Well, so the the yeah, so the, the, the point would be that in general, you don't have to make that assumption, right? You you could imagine, so if you're particularly if you you know, if your state evolution function and your state equivalence function, as I mentioned before, come from different, if there are different levels in the arithmetical hierarchy, for instance, they use different models of computation, then they're definitely not the same notion of equality that they're inducing. Right, that the you know you you can have pairs of states that are branchially equivalent but not kind of temporarily equivalent, um, because you know your because your equivalence function can witness more equivalences than your evolution function can witness, for instance, um, and so the recasting I made of p versus n p is really asking you know how how different can they be, um, and you know uh, yeah p not equaling n p is just or, yeah, P not, not equaling NP is just the kind of the, the, the in a sense, is the, the weakest case of those two notions of equivalence being different. I'm not explaining that very well, but I can. Right. Well, I mean, what you're saying is that branching is that somehow uh, hmm. the question is whether you get the same, you know, whether going a certain distance in time with as much branching as can happen in that time is the same as just going that distance in time without worrying about the branching. That's basically the P, a single fiber for P versus the whole, you know, whatever you call it, uh, the whole kind of, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm thinking of a uh, the whole paintbrush or something in the case of, um, uh, um, okay. Well, let's see. I'm supposed to go off and do a different live stream here, but this is we're having fun. So, so um uh um I, I, I want to come back again to this, you know, the experience your claim is basically that we have the experience of being able, we, although we don't know it, we're doing certain equivalences. And that in a world, so so for example, we could be in the hyperruliad, capable only of doing incredibly weak equivalences. We could be in the hyperruliad and not even be able to do the XXX equivalence. What would the world look like to us then? Wait, wait. Hang on, sorry. Do, I'm you, saying, I, it, we're yeah. saying, you're saying in the hyperruliad. Yeah, yeah. We... Oh, I see. I see. The basic point is, if we are, if we're embedded in the hyperruliad, then we don't get to do the XXX equivalence, you know, potentially. Yeah, or, or, or maybe you know, or some some maybe not. Maybe we could do one that was that trivial, but we couldn't do one of these more non-trivial, you know, Turing machine 
normalization. Yeah, but actually, I want to come back again to this question about ordinal numbers and so on, whether that's a useful uh, dividing line. What are the dividing lines, basically? There's, there's, you know, is there primitive recursion? Is there ordinals? Is there pure arithmetic? What, what are the dividing lines for the capability, the characterization, which would be a little bit like the computational complexity characterization for the capabilities of the observer? That is, you know, in, for example, I don't know, in thinking about statistical mechanics, the question of whether the observer is has can only do polynomially bounded computations is a right. is a reasonable distinction. But the question of whether uh we're asking the observer in the hyperruliad, the basic defining claim is the observer can only do decidable computations. Right. Well, actually, the observer, even in our universe, the observer can only do right. decidable. Go ahead. But but the but the but the hyper there isn't just one hypo ruliad, right? Like there's so the point is that okay, even so there's one version where you just have primitive recursive functions, but you could also imagine one where you have primitive recursive functions where the recursion is bounded by some number. And yes. in that case, it's like okay, if you're you know if you can only recurse ten levels deep, and your computation takes you on a loop that's eleven steps long. Then now, okay, you you have no way of determining the original loop. Right. So your claim is that just as there's an arithmetic hierarchy above Turing computation, so there is a you know I don't know how meaningful I don't know how robust the hierarchy is below. Right. But I mean, even with even with the arithmetical hierarchy, it's still not known because you know the arithmetical hierarchy is incredibly coarse, and it's no you know you can have intermediate Turing degrees and so on, and and there's still a bunch that's unknown about exactly how. How robust those intermediate levels are, and and yeah, I think I think the same is true for the kind of sub arithmetical hierarchy as well. Well, but the claim is there are robust levels in the arithmetic hierarchy. So the question is, are there yeah. are there robust levels in the sub arithmetic hierarchy? I would suspect that primitive recursion is one. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean this. So I don't know. All all of this is kind of. Uh, it's always bothered me that you know the, the fact that Turing computation is is treated so is given this very special status in the hierarchy, right? That it's that's the kind of unique uh, minimal element. Where I don't, I, I think the the reason why I like the I find the idea of of like Lulial relativity um, appealing is precisely because it gets rid of the specialness of Turing computation. It's like Turing Absolutely, computation, right? It's just one all the way down. What's right. that? We, we don't want anything special about anything, <laughs> right? The only thing that's special. Is that we are who we are and not, not who we are, so to speak. <laughs> in other words, that that in in the whole Rouliard idea, you know, that becomes the only specialness is our feature, you know, because it, it, the same kind of specialness is the fact that we're at this place in physical space rather than another, mm -hmm. and presumably that we're in this place in branchial space rather than another. Right. But I mean, in in so, in other words, the only thing that's special is the particularness of our history, mm -hmm. which leads us to be where we are rather than somewhere else, so to speak. Um, but, but I mean, and, and your claim is, see, it might be the case that there's simply a reformulation. As soon as you say the observer has this level of computational sophistication at this level of the, of the arithmetic hierarchy, it could very well be 
that the whole mechanics of what you can conclude is exactly the same. That is, yeah. that, 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 which is essentially your statement of real relativity, that, um, uh, that with respect to that the robustness of what you can say, so that will be kind of like a statement like, oh, I don't know, there are plenty of these where, where it doesn't matter what is another example? Something where you can be at a different level, like, like in computational complexity theory. Are there statements that you can make at any level in the hierarchy of computational complexity that are true at that level, that, that are true you know, statements that you can make um, relative to that level and around that level that will be true for any level? Uh, I mean, there are definitely so like there is in the polynomial hierarchy, right, which is the computational complexity theoretic analog. There are definitely I know there are certainly like uh, sort of recurrence relations and things that, that, that like somewhat non-trivial recurrence relations that apply that, that allow you to relate like, you know, sigma IP to some uh, product of delta I plus two thing, you know, for, for arbitrary I or whatever. I, I, I can't remember off my head. But well, there so, are so you're saying that locally there. in the polynomial hierarchy that there are local statements that can be made near you in the polynomial hierarchy that are yeah. that are uh, a kind of translation independent about where you are in the in the in the polynomial hierarchy right exactly exactly yeah well that seems like probably what will happen with the ruleal hierarchy as well yeah that, that... and um, okay so to be a little bit cryptic i mean i, I know i made a similar comment at the summer school so I think the I think the very fact that we have a notion of geometry, that we have a notion of continuum geometry, is itself evidence of that fact. Because so, if you imagine a, a, an observer anywhere in this hierarchy, and they look up and they look at all the stuff that's above them, what do they see? Well, they can't determine in detail what's actually going on. At best, they can make some coarse grained determination and say that you know this has this bulk feature and whatever. Um, and in the case of computational models of physics, those bulk features are essentially geometrical features. And so my suspicion is that, you know, to, again, to be a little bit cryptic about it, that wherever you are in the hierarchy, everything above you kind of looks like geometry. Everything above you looks like space. And everything below you sort of looks like algebra. It looks kind of discrete. Um, because, you, you know, because you have the level of computational sophistication to actually tease apart what's going on. Okay, so your basic claim is that which you can't understand, you consider to be the continuum, so to speak. Right. So, in other words, that which you can't understand, you necessarily uh, kind of conflate things to the point where you get the continuum. Whereas mm -hmm. that which is below you in this hierarchy, you can tease apart the elements and see that there's lots of, you know, cogs going on there. Exactly. You know, if if the if if there was hypercomputation going on in any of the whatever it is hundred or so orders of magnitude, uh, you know, between the elementary lens scale and between uh, and, and things that you see, how would you know, right? What would, what, how would you be able to distinguish that hypercomputation from just, you know, the background noise of space? Right. But, but wait a minute. So, so you're saying, yes, I mean, so you're, you're saying anything that is more computationally sophisticated than you are, if you're looking at it without that computational sophistication, yeah, I mean, another way to say it is it will look random. 
and the randomness will lead to an ergodic type hypothesis, which will lead to the continuum. It's it's really just extending it's it's just extending the 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 bounds of PCE in one direction, if you see what I mean, right? The, you're saying so rather than just saying anything that's equ of equivalent sophistication to you will look complex, which is of course true. It's also saying anything that is also greater complexity than you will look indistinguishable from something that is of equivalent complexity to you. Well, we, 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 wait a minute. We'll look indistinguishable. We'll look random to you, and that randomness you will be able to say about that because you can't say anything about it. The thing you will be able to say about it is that it looks like geometry. Right, but, but it looks random, but then so would something that had the same level of computational sophistication as you. The, 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 you know, the, the, the point is that if you have, I guess, okay, so you, know, you, 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 have, an, you have an undecidable statement in, in some axiomatic theory, and you have an undecidable statement in the stronger axiomatic theory, in some stronger axiomatic theory, well, they're both still undecidable. They both look, you know, they're, they're both equally intractable to you. Um, and so to you as an observer, I would, would hypothesize they will both look random, even though one of them is strictly, uh, you know, more sophisticated. Okay, but so, so do you get geometry at your level or do you only get geometry when you're looking above your level? I, I would get, get geometry at your get, level. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be the that would be the PCE claim, which I think is, yeah. Which I think is yeah. Uh, and it's also the claim of thermodynamics. I mean, it's basically the claim that as soon as your right equivalent, so okay, so your claim is all that we would see if we look above us is we would see all we'd be able to distinguish is geometry. We wouldn't be able to distinguish any of the machinery because right. by definition, we can't distinguish the machinery because we're not sophisticated enough to do that. And the what it will look like to us, it will look random, it will look geometrical, it will look continuous. Hmm. Right. I, I guess okay, maybe maybe another way to say it would be so you know again P PCE just says like anything that's of equivalent sophistication to you, you can't you know you you can't reduce. Um, but I guess the rule of relativity view would be to say well. And anything that was more sophisticated than you that you couldn't you couldn't reduce anyway, so it would look like something of equivalent sophistication to you. And so you can just try, so you, so from the point from the vantage point of view as an observer, just caring about things that you can observationally access, you might as well truncate the rule of your hierarchy at that point because anything above yeah. you is not going to make any difference. Right. So this is an argument that I actually made in NKS about about real number computation, which is if you can't prepare the initial state. Or recognize the output as a perfect real number, what's the point of talking about the perfect real number? And the question right. then is could the machinery inside do computations that you can distinguish at the two ends, so to speak? Right. Um, and the claim, which is not an obvious claim, and I'm not sure, you know, I don't think I could prove that claim, is that that, that machinery in the middle can't, it isn't the case that the machine, okay, so the assertion would be, with that machinery in the middle, you can't solve the halting problem. There's no real number of machinery in the middle where you can prepare the initial state. You can say, here it is. It's an integer-specified Turing machine. Now the analog computer inside can solve the halting problem and give you a discrete answer. So the claim is that that's not possible. Right. Can you prove that? Well, I, okay, I think this is... Let me just try and make sure that I, that I have correctly abstracted the idea. So. Would, would a valid way of 
formulating that be to say, okay, so suppose we've got a hypercomputational universe, but we have the restriction that we can only build computational, like we can only build like computational experiments, right? Because we can only do yep. you know, experiments are all Turing computable. So, and this is really a question about what experiments you can and can't build. But so, you know, in that case, could you imagine building a computable experiment that was able to somehow mine the exactly. non-computability of the outside world as an oracle to produce exactly. non-computable observables? Right. It's a reservoir computing for hypercomputation. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you would need a formal definition. You would need some formal model for experiments, which I, I think we don't yet have. Um, well, but okay, but we can now play that same, you know, story again against the hyperruliad, because while we can't verify things for the hyperruliad, we're kind of out of luck in verifying it. So it seems, but right. for the hyperruliad, we can just run a computer experiment on a, you know, on a Turing-like computer and see what happens. So the the analogous statement would be, given a, I mean, I agree that we don't have enough of observer theory to be able to really formulate this well. But given a poor equivalence function in the hypo-Ruliad, can we ask, can we mine, you know, can we mine the Ruliad? Can yeah, my, we... so my, my, my intuition is the same as yours, I think. So, so for the following reason, that, you know, again, if, if you look at the PCE case, it seems unlike, you know, so if, if you have something that if you have the experiment mining a computational process that is the same sophistication as the observer, then, you know, the observer sees essentially random bits or can just see, you know, what appear to them to be random bits. For the, for the claim that you could do the reservoir computing thing, you would need to have something that was somehow stronger than randomness, right? You the, 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 the random bits they would see from the, from the Oracle would somehow need to be more random than the random bits they see from, uh, for, you know, for, from just an ordinary Turing uh, computable thing, um, which I don't know. I don't. Well, I, I mean, that's that. that's Greg Chaitin's claim that you know this is the long-running discussion that we've had: is the universe like pi or like omega? Because right. the randomness that you would get, algorithmic randomness, there is a notion of ra bits that are more random than random. It's bits that are algorithmically random rather than pi-like random. Sure. And um, oh. but, right, but the thing you know, uh, the reason why it's non-trivial, I would argue, is because you know what's coming out of this general way of thinking about the world is that there's two notions of algorithmic information and, alg and therefore algorithmic randomness that you have to care about. There's the algorithmic complexity of the system, and there's the algorithmic complexity of the observer, and those two trade off in a fairly non-trivial way. And so my my hypothesis would be, and I think I can even probably formulate a, a formal version of at least part of this, is that there's you know you can ref you can cast the universe in a way that makes it like a, makes it like pi, but the observer becomes like omega, and you can cast the universe in a way that you know the observer is like um, the universe is like omega, but the observer becomes like pi. Well, but you you don't think that's our actual universe? I mean, probably in our actual universe, it's both the observer and the universe are like pi. Probably. Um, I mean, that will be the that will be the mystical claim of you know Gödel, Penrose, whoever that we are like Omega, but the universe is like Pi. Right. Well, yeah. The, okay. Actually, you know, and let me correct what I just said. Pr yeah. Pr pr I think 
what is more likely is actually yeah sorry is, is that is that you could make the universe trivial by making the observer like a you could make the universe like one if you make I it agree like yes yeah. yes if the universe if the observer is is a, a higher level in the arithmetic hierarchy the universe will look trivial to them right yes yeah, so, so, yeah, as just as the at, at the Ruliad level the hypo Ruliad like the xxxxx behavior looks trivial to us right. Yeah. So, so I get, I get, yeah. Okay. So, to correct my earlier statement, so I, I guess the 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 claim would be more like one and omega are like the two extremes, and pi is this intermediate case where you know, you, so you you can balance and have both be like pi, or you can unbalance and have one be like one and one be like omega or something. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's the way. In in the case of omega, in the case of everything is like pi, you've got observers and the universe sort of at the same level. In the case of omega versus one, you've packaged up everything that could happen in the universe into omega, and there's nothing more to say about what happens in the universe. Right, right. It's all um, uh, it's all over, so to speak. Um, I think I'm supposed to go to my other live stream, but maybe we made we made some progress here. This is good. This is um, uh, we should continue and um, um, sure. Uh, uh. Yeah, no, good. I mean, is there anything else we, uh, we 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 might reignite on a different on a different thing here? But is there anything obvious? I mean, we've covered. I think we've gotten some distance in understanding this kind of rule of relativity, thinking through the rule of relativity thing. I think this idea of sort of well, okay, to ask one last question, which isn't such a simple question, this idea of inevitable geometry, and the idea of looking up in the computational hierarchy, so to speak, to see inevitable geometry. How does that relate to Grothendieck's inevitable geometry ideas? Right. I mean, so it's a good question. Uh, so my view would be that, okay, so uh, we have a way of formulating the, you know, the kind of infinity groupoids thing that appears in the context of Grothendieck's hypothesis in terms of multi-way systems, right? So if you, if you start from a non-terminating, non-confluent multi-way system, and then you add progressively more completion rules that let you bind paths together. That's equivalent to adding higher homotopies in some, you know, in some initial to adding progressively higher morphisms in the initial uh, homotopy category. And if so, if you keep that process, won't terminate. And so, if you keep doing it, eventually you build up to some infinity group point. Um, and so then, yeah. So 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 Grothendieck's hypothesis would be the claim that, uh, that yeah, that, that thing, you know, that thing has has inevitable geometry, and and uh, when you take global sections through it, those global sections inherit geometry from that. From that infinity groupoid, I guess the rule of relativity viewpoint would be to say, well, okay, yes, but 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 that infinity category is just quotes just the Ruliad. There's a whole hierarchy of these things, starting from multi-way systems that embody different models of computation, um, and the point is that all of them will look geometrical, if you know, from from that starting point, so to speak. There's, the, in other words, there's there's a finer grained uh, notion than one gets in standard category theory. Uh, when one starts to consider uh, computability classes and complexity classes of the underlying morphisms and equivalences that allow you to kind of formulate, uh, a, you know, a, a, um, a whole infinite class of Grothendieck-like hypotheses, the, and, and so I guess the point is that the Grothendieck hypothesis thing is then relativized to a particular model of computation. It's like this version of the rule this version of the infinity groupoid looks geometrical if you are an observer with this, you know, obeying this particular computational model, but if you had a stronger computational model, you could look at that thing and it would not look geometrical. You could actually piece up, you could tease apart its algebraic structure in some way. 
Okay, so one way to say that would be, you know, maybe the ordinary growth and deke hypothesis with growth and deke's infinity groupoid works for a category theoretic like observer. What is a category theoretic like observer? That's presumably an observer who has the belief that, you know, aggregating morphisms is, is free. Yeah, I mean, so, and again, this is relates to some stuff I've written that, that, that we just, and we discussed this a few years ago now um, about, you know, how category theory kind of implicitly assumes computational reducibility, right? The, the fact I know, this is one of my favorite Jonathan things, that you go and start a center for applied category theory, and the next week, you write a paper about why category theory is limited. Anyway. Right, right. Yeah, right, but 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 you know, fortunately, you can you can extend it, and and so there's yeah, there's there's this you know there's this generalized notion of category theory where the morphisms can you know have complexity of information or have you know information about that computational complexity, and there's an algebra for how those complexities compose, and then yeah, as long as those complexities compose uh, sort of um, it, it, you know. If they compose purely additively, then that's kind of like maximal computational irreducibility. And anytime they compose sub-additively, that's you know you have some degree of of computational reducibility in that in, in that corresponding computation. And there's an analogous thing you can do when you tensor different computations together. If you have a monoidal category, you can ask how, how additive are the how additive or sub-additive are the complexities under the tensor product that gives you multi-computational complexity. And then yeah, exactly this the thing we've been discussing about the trade-off between. The sophistication of the evolution function versus the sophistication of the equivalence function is can be recast as an algebraic question about how do these two composition operations, uh, you know, how, how do they interact? What, what are their coherence conditions? Um, and so, a a classical category theoretic observer is one that is something that is much more like a primitive recursive function, right? It's one that has no computational irreducibility that we can look at and we can just immediately kind of decode because we kind of have to be able to in order for uh, in order to be able to do morphism composition. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. so Grothendieck's hypothesis, in that sense, yeah, you could say it's a, it's it's a, a, it's the hypothesis for the case of a category theory like observer, and that that's really more like the hypo Rouliad case, I would argue. This this more fine grained kind of computation informed version of category theory allows you to also consider versions of that hypothesis that that you know that have categories that are you know Turing computable or whatever. But so right, so the point being that. This statement about what is more computationally, what is as computationally sophisticated as you or more computationally sophisticated to you looks inevitably geometric would be a, a simple case of that would be the growth and deep case. A more sophisticated case of that would be the Turing case, so to speak, the Turing computation Rouliad type case. Right. Um, and uh, so, I mean, this notion of inevitable geometry it is a nice. It's nice. I mean, that that's that's very, um, uh, you know, the concept of the presence of inevitable randomness implies the presence of inevitable geometry. Is a. I mean, that's pretty. I don't really know what, you know, the connection between randomness and inevitable geometry. I suppose you could take that as being some kind of ergodic hypothesis type statement about the fact that. As soon as it is random, you're kind of filling the space, and then you've got a space that you're filling, and then you've got geometry, so to speak, something right. like that. Right, um, exactly. And I mean, I, 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 I know we've we've discussed this in other forms, but I, I, I think it's it's a it's a nice, um, it's a nice new thing that the physics project gives us that you know that goes beyond the NKS view 
this idea that you know so so in the in the in the nks view you'd say okay you know, laws of nature correspond to you know computationally reducible pockets of some computation you know the slightly in my opinion the slightly non-trivial fact that seems to be true about physics is that the laws of physics that we know are exactly the opposite of that right that they correspond to statements that you can make as a consequence of irreducibility um that you know general relativity and in a in a different way but related way quantum mechanics are both instances where you have maximal kind of computational irreducibility and that allows and but by virtue of that irreducibility that allows you to make certain coarse-grained macroscopic statements well in effect geometric statements right, right which exactly. is which is but i mean so what it sort of is is the trade-off when you talk about geometry it's the trade-off of you can get very very complicated in the integers and then but that's like being in the reals so to speak Right. That's that. That's like saying, you know, okay, you've got all this fancy stuff you're building in the integers, but now we, we can just put a big blanket over the whole thing, and that's the reals. Right. Is that the way to? But I mean, that that's sort of interesting because it says, um, what does that say about things like the continuum hypothesis and the question of whether there are are? I mean, the, that claim that you have inevitable geometry which is associated with the reals what does that say about the 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 lack of an intermediate level yeah that's okay. interesting i mean cause, so because all right so i mean when one thinks about the classical constructions of the reals right things like cauchy sequences or dedekind cuts or, or um continued fractions or something one way you can think about them is is exactly is in exactly those the terms you said right they're, they're just ways of kind of saying we take the integers or by extension, the rationals, and we package them up in some way, and we and we define some some non-trivial operation on the, you know some non-trivial computational operation on them, like the ability to add Cauchy sequences together or something, and then you can do uh, operations in you know just at the level of those packagings of integers and, and rationals. But what you're doing is really isomorphic in some deep sense to to real numbered arithmetic to you know to, to continuum arithmetic, and so then I guess. Then I guess the, the so the the analog would be so you know now suppose that we were in the hyper ruliad where you know real numbers were to us like what integers are real numbers were, were to us what integers are to us now right so so you know for instance in you know the, the, there's a bunch of things that are special about the about the integers on the naturals like you know the fact that they are the basis of how we do recursion and so on so you can imagine if you were a hyper ruleal mathematician you build mathematics in a way that that, that treats the reals on the same level. Um, and then to you, you could do a, you could imagine doing a similar thing. You could imagine packaging up real numbers together and defining complicated operations on them. And those are then isomorphic to doing arithmetic in whatever two to the R in, in some two to the RF null model. Um, and so, so really, I guess the continuum hypothesis is about, I guess the way you could recast it is that it's about what mathematics is possible at different level, what kinds of mathematics is possible at different levels of this rule or hierarchy. Right. And, and, and you know, do, do, in other words, does there exist an intermediate mathematics that you can do that involves packaging up, um, uh, you know, real numbers together in some in some non-trivial way that gives you a structure that's not isomorphic to the, you know, to a two to, a two to the RLF null uh, model? Right. Well, I mean, I suppose one thing is, you know, we've got all of these rules that have, you know, we've got multi-way systems and all this kind of thing. Multi-way systems are very integer like. 
What right. on earth is the real number? I, I thought about this for a while, actually, and didn't really come up with anything very good. What is the real number analog of a multi-way system? Because a multi-way system, you know, crucially has this idea of branching. And you could imagine instead of branching, you have a, a, a you know, a fan of, of stuff that is parameterized by a real number. But that doesn't quite get you what you need, because then, then you no longer have kind of the duality between uh, steps of, you know, that branching step. I mean, it, it feels more like a PDE, because instead of, it's it's right. like some kind of generalized construct, maybe like a path integral, actually, that where at every step, you have a continuum number of possibilities at every you know, at every epsilon away step, you have a continuum set of possible branches. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you, if you imagine um, if you imagine a hyperbolic a system of hyperbolic partial differential equations, you can ask and you look at its characteristic structure. I would say that's really the that's really like the continuum analog of a multi-way system. You can ask about you can take the divert if you apply a divergence operator to that, it's effectively telling you about the the analog of branching and merging of the characteristic lines, which is yeah, which is kind of a continuum version of a multi-way system. Well, your your claim is that we could take, I mean, it would be an interesting exercise. We could take your average simple multiway system and we could write down a system of hyperbolic PDEs of which the multiway graph is the is the uh is the causal is so, well, the causal multiway graph or something is is or something. I don't think it's the multiway graph. I think it's just a causal graph is the graph of the characteristic lines. Right. I think to get multiway, I think you have to have a path integral, not a PDE. So okay, the, the thing you say about causal structure is certainly true. Let me think about the. I mean, I think it requires a path integral, and that means it's sort of doomed that because because basically the mathematics of path integrals is still not well understood. Yes, unlike PDEs, where we have some level of of uh, of you know of understanding path integrals. I mean, I think that's what. I mean, it, in a sense, it is completely unsurprising that the continuum limit of a multiway system is a path integral, because after all, multiway systems are what we think make quantum mechanics, which is described in the normal continuum theory with the path integral. So, um, but I just want to understand, and I, we're going way long here, but but Tim, I just want to understand your statement about the continuum hypothesis, because you're, you're saying that that you're saying is there a level of mathematicians, so to speak, that is between the, well, okay, first question is, if the integers are our level, the Turing level, so to speak, and the reals are a hyper level, mm -hmm. what is the hypo level? Is the hypo level just a discrete set of values and not the full integers or what? Is that a reasonable hypo level? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you imagine, okay, you know, a primitive recursive function, because its recursion is bounded, cannot generate the integers. It can generate any finite subset, can't generate the integers. So yeah. a finite subset of the integers would be the analog of a hypo rule. Really okay, fine. All right. So then, so then the question is, what is the analog of the continuum hypothesis between finite sets of integers and the integers? Yeah, right. Yeah, so so that that would be if you know if if you were a hypo rural civilization and you know you can only count up to ten, and then you and, and you and you see, uh, but but you have but your analog of analysis is how you deal with the with the you know the the irreducible complexity of what we think of as being integers, just ordinary integers. 
So then you could ask the question, ah, are there, is there a number system that is strictly larger than our number system between one and 10? And this weird, you know, integer thing that, that we have to have, we have, we have to invent complicated calculus like mathematics to be able to understand. What is that calculus? So let's say you are a, you are a count to 10 civilization. What is right. your calculus for dealing with integers? I mean, you could imagine having something that was, I mean, okay. So on, on a very, so yeah, so, so suppose that you, you simply have no way of adding anything that goes beyond 10, right? Uh, it's just not a function you can compute. But you could imagine repackaging collections of integers in a yes. way that you treated them like the, the, so that they in, in if you treated their isomorphism classes, their canonical, you know, the, the, the defining canonical element would be an integer larger than 10. And so then you could simulate doing more general integer arithmetic using that repackaging of only integers between one and 10. And locally, you're only doing uh, arithmetic operations that involve ad, you know, things that are bounded between one and 10. So is that the analog of thinking about reals in terms of digit sequences? Yeah, or, or but I mean, digit sequences are just Cauchy sequences, right? I mean, in another in another form. So, so the, yeah. My my point is there. The point I was making before is that all the classical constructions of the reals are have exactly this character. You just take the integers and you package them up in some fancy way, and then you reduce the you 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 do locally. You're only doing integer arithmetic when when you when you add uh, Cauchy sequences or you add continued fractions or you add um, Dedekind cuts together. You're doing only integer arithmetic locally, but you're doing you're doing an infinite number of those things. And globally, that adds up to real number arithmetic. So it's a way of simulating real number arithmetic, which we can't do computationally, with integer arithmetic, which we can do computationally. And you can imagine a hyperruleal mathematical civilization doing the same thing. That they can only add things up to ten, but if they take, if they repackage a bunch of integers and you know manipulate and 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 only locally add them between one and ten, then that repackaging can be used to simulate an integer that's larger than ten. Okay. So what you're saying is they invent digital arithmetic, basically. They invent positional notation by saying they can only deal with the individual individual digits, but they have a, you know, their analog of the reals, just as our analog of the reals is we take infinite sequences of digits to represent a real. So they take infinite sequences of, uh, you know, numbers between one and 10 to try to represent an integer, aka right. they've got digits. That, you know, conveniently in your model of between zero and nine or something, um, it's uh, um, works that way. You know, I think I'm going to uh, we we should we're, we're on a bit of a roll here. We we should I should probably not do my next live stream. We should probably spend a few more minutes here. If that would does that work for you? Uh, if that if uh, that's fine with me. If that's if that's not going to disrupt the schedule too much. Well, let's find out. Let me just see. Um, Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should. Uh, um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. This is too much. Um, well, let's just see what the what the team thinks here. It's thought to be okay. Um, we're we're allowed to do this. Um, the claim would be that we are at the integer level. We see the reals by packaging infinite collections of integers. At the hypo level, we have discrete collections of numbers. You know, finite collections of numbers. We see the integers by packaging together infinite sequence, infinite collections of those finite uh, sets of numbers. Okay, so now, what is the continuum hypothesis in the case of the packaging of discrete collections of integers? 
Right. So, so you know, their, their analog, okay, an analog of the continual hypothesis would be, you know, does there exist a notion of a, a sensible notion of arithmetic between, for integers between one and 11, for instance. So, you know, the, the, in other words, that you have a, a number system that is strictly intermediate between the number system that they use and, you know, and, 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 the, and the full real number system. Yes. Okay. But uh, which is not somehow trivially equivalent to one end or the other. Right. Right. Exactly. And, but, but now let's see. In the, in the usual case of the continuum hypothesis, you say as soon as you get to two to the, two to the aleph zero, you have got to aleph one, right? You're, you're saying there's nothing between, is that correct? So as soon as you, yes, as soon as you've exactly. got those, as soon as you're doing all those Cauchy sequences, you have reached the reals. Uh, well, yeah. So, so, so we we know that that's true. So, so you know, any construction of the reals is going to give you something that's that's cardinality two to the aleph null, right? So the, the question is, you know, is there an aleph one that's in between aleph null and that? Okay, wait a minute. So, how what is the definition of that then? So, so we have the reals. So, so, so we we we. It's it's easy to see that the reals have to have cardinality two to the aleph null, right? Because you can you can formulate them as the power set of integers. Um, and so so then the question is is that yeah is there a, as you put it you know is there a number system in between the integers and the reals that has an intermediate cardinality and is not trivial you know that is not trivially equivalent to either end. So it's you know do, it does there exist an aleph null that is strictly larger than aleph null uh, than, uh, an aleph one that is strictly larger than aleph null but strictly less than due to the aleph null. Okay, so what's the analog of that in this discrete case? What's the cardinality? So the cardinality of the integers we know, it's you know it's it's aleph zero. The cardinality of this, I'm a little bit confused now by the cardinality. It's it's ten to the, uh, I mean. What's confusing about this case is the cardinality of the digits is is ten to the aleph zero, isn't it? The cardinality, if we have an infinite collection, or did I get my my transfinite mm -hmm. numbers wrong? Because if I have an infinite collection of of the groups of ten, isn't that equivalent? Now I'm really confused. That's equivalent. That's equivalent to the reals, not the integers. But, no, no, but but they but they don't have an infinite collection. Because every because every natural number is finite, right? So they have a finite. So so that, you know if, if each if each one of I'm going to call these things sub integers, right? If if they have if each one of these sub integers is like a place value, there's no integer that has infinite you know um, infinite digits in it. So that, so they're only ever dealing with finite collections of these sub integers. So, okay. so, so the point is that they they would be saying, okay, so let's look at the cardinality of the set of finite collections of subintegers, and that would give them aleph. Which null. is what? Which is what in, in transfinite number world? Uh, I mean, well, it's the same as I mean, we can see that it's the same as the cardinality of the naturals, right? Yes, but you're saying that, that... that's going to be all. So, 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 that, so, what the, the point is that you know, all right. Their model of computation only knows, you know, can only directly compute things between one and ten, and and so so that that cardinal, so in particular, they can't express that cardinality except, you know, th their analog of a transfinite cardinal would be the one that expresses the cardinality of that set. So they would call what we would call ten. We would call, oh no, sorry, what we would call ten. They would call aleph null, right? And then what we would call aleph null, 
they would call uh, whatever two to the one. Yeah, two two to the other. Right. No, right. And so, yeah, so then the, so then that, their their version of that question would be: Is there a set of intermediate cardinality? Okay. And so and what's the answer? What's the answer? Because we, we we can look from a much bigger view. Well, so so from our perspective, the answer is trivially yes. From their perspective, is it? What, wait a minute. What what why is it? What, what do you mean? Is the no, I don't understand. What what is the set? So the, 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 their version of the continuum hypothesis is trivially false to us, right? What is that? Why? Why? Because What's because we can imagine because we can see that the the set of integers between one and eleven exists, right? And that would be strict intermediate in cardinality. But the question would be, could they construct that set within their mathematics? And that's non-trivial, right? And. The, the statement that the continuum hypothesis is independent of piano arithmetic, or independent of ZFC, sorry, um, that's proved, I mean, what, what Cohen's forcing construction does is essentially to show that you could imagine building, the, you know, okay, one way you could think about forcing is you can say, I've got my set theoretic universe, I've got my model of mathematics, and I can build inside that a, a set of intermediate cardinality but where if I'm an observer embedded in that universe, I can't, con you know, I can't construct the proof that that thing, that that set is a set of intermediate cardinality. The, the, the forcing construction is, is extremely interesting from a philosophical, I, I think it's extremely interesting from a philosophical point of view, because it's, it's all about these kind of relativized notion of what does this mathematical object look like if I'm bounded in this way? Because, you know, the, 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 the way that forcing works, and in particular, the way that this Post this forcing poset construction works. This p name construction works. Is it's all about how about assigning cardinalities to sets in one universe from the vantage point of another universe, and the and 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 the reason you can do that is you can say, um, and by the way, I think this is of relevance to infracalculus in a in a slightly um, non-trivial way. But so you can say, okay, so uh, you know, what does it mean for a set to be uh, countable? Well, it means that I can biject it with the naturals. So what if I, you know, I, from a God's eye view, can see that the bijection exists, but in, inside my set theoretic unit, you know, because every fun, you know, functions are just given by ex, you know, set exponentiation. So if I can control my set theoretic universe, if I can control what sets do and do not appear in the domain of discourse, I can control in a fairly fine-grained way what functions are and are not constructible. So I can build a set which is countable from the outside, but which internal to the universe is not countable because the function that bijects it with the naturals doesn't exist. And that's really the that's really the key to to Cohen being able to show that there existed models of, of ZFC uh, that where the continuum hypothesis was was false. Um, so how can we apply forcing to our kind of stuff? What is the relationship between forcing and observer theory? Well, so I again I I think it's really quite central, and in fact this is I mean I I, I know I've talked about this before, but I think this is philosophically this is how i would want to think about the whole um uh infracalculus idea right because so the point is that you could imagine saying i've got this set and you know like I, i've got some collection of elements and i can see that it's countable i can see that it's discrete um but if i build a sufficiently restricted model of computation if i if i localize it into a sufficiently computationally bounded universe or i look at it through the lens of a sufficiently computationally bounded observer and in particular sufficiently bounded that i can't construct a bijection between the elements of that collection and the naturals it will look to me like a continuum it will look like it's uncountable and so what would appear so in so what would appear to the first observer like it's just combinatorics 
would look to the second observer like it's analysis or geometry or something. Um, and so I think, again, from my, my, my philosophical way of thinking about the infracalculus idea would be that it's about taking what, you know, it's about doing combinatorics in some kind of hyper observer view that then looks like geometry to a, to a lower observer view. Right. But so, okay, so just going through this again, in, in the traditional view, I, I don't know, the I, I should know, but I don't know the whole Cohen proof thing. Uh, one question, where else, I mean, this idea of forcing of what you're describing as relativized ways of looking at, you know, what sets are constructible. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because so, I just I mean very, very in very very big picture terms i mean the, the 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 logical outline of the proof is you you start from a set there so Gödel showed that you could construct models of zsc zfc in which um in which the in which ch was true which were consistent with the continuum hypothesis so um you start from a model from a set theoretic universe in which the continuum hypothesis is true then what forcing allows you to do is to build a new universe from that one that's still consistent with zfc but which allows you enough fine-grained control over the cardinalities of sets that you can falsify the continuum hypothesis to the greatest extent, you know, to, to whatever extent that you like. So, you know, you, you, you can take, for instance, you could you can imagine building from the initial universe, a universe where every set is, say, Cartesian producted with the unit interval or something. And so now uh, everything that was countable in the original universe is uncountable in the new universe. Um, and 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 then what yeah he, he then the, the thing that's really interesting is this p name construct you know, this, this p name idea which as i say is really just a way of relativizing cardinalities which allow you to say i can see from a god's eye perspective that even though this set looks like it has this cardinality in this universe it actually has this cardinality and and that's the way you prove that you've you've successfully constructed something that violates ch okay so what's the analog of forcing for the for the hyperruleal civilization well, I think forcing is a general enough construction because it's really, as I say, it's really a philosophical idea. I don't think that they they need. I think they can use something akin to forcing, right? That they okay. they can. So, so how do they prove? So, first of all, what is their analog of set theory? Is it finite set theory? What would be their analog of ZFC? Yeah, so they certainly couldn't have the axiom of infinity, right? So that they, they, right. they would need some they would need some finitely axiomatizable fragment of set theory that didn't allow for for the that you know where. Probably what we would call finite set theory, I would suspect. But it's more than finite. It's it. So okay, this is we're now going to enter a domain that I, I, I that's on my list of things I want to understand better. So I don't. But the, uh, uh, Girard had this like, this concept of linear logic, which I, you may be familiar. I've with. heard of it. I, d I don't understand it either. So we're right, right, right. So so, but from the little that I understand of it, what I've seen, it's really a kind of resource bounded version of logic, right? Yes. So if if you say I'm only, you know, for instance, one thing you, that I know it allows you to say is uh, I, I'm only, you know, just like we have with the arithmetical hierarchy, right? You you bound the number of times that a, the, the number of nestings of a given quantifier or something. Linear logic apparently supposedly allows you to do that to a much greater extent, right? You can have fairly fine grained control about over how many times can I use this such and such an operation in, in, in my logical theory. And so my suspicion would be that these sub integer, this, this sub integer civilization would have a version of set theory that was where their axioms, their analog of the ZFC axioms would not be built on first order logic, but would, would be built on something akin to linear logic, where, because in particular, they would, their sort of version of the axiom of infinity would have to bound, you know, they, they should not yeah. be able to construct any set of cardinality greater than 10. 
And so, so that, that in particular, they would need a version of logic that prevented them from doing that. And I think linear logic would probably be the, the way to do that, I, but I don't know. Right. Okay. So they have their analog, which to us looks like a completely decidable theory. Right. Their analog that uses this bounded logic, that is, and so then the question would be, which one could explicitly look at, whether within this bounded logic, what is the set of size 11 constructible? Right. Okay, and the claim would be that that bounded logic, what would be the claim? That you both, what would be the claim? That you could construct, how, how would it work that you both could and could not construct the set of size 11? So you would need to, okay, so, so you would need to have a, the, whatever their set theory would be, you would need to have something where you could you could build a collection. So you would need to have one model of their set theory in which you could build a collection of integers, each one being between one and ten, uh, or a collection of such collections. Sorry, that had cardinality eleven, and where you could prove it had cardinality. Or in particular, you could prove that. So you could not construct a bijection between that set and the set of integers between one and 10. Um, but you could also prove that it had cardinality strictly less than the integers. But then they would also need to have a model of set theory in which you could not construct such a set. Right, and so you're saying- the, And the not being able to construct such a set, that would be, so for that, they should be able to use Cohen's forcing construction in its, you know, Piece, you know, more or less wholesale. Okay, but the, the basic point is that they're right. Well, we should look at that. We should see whether this actually works. I mean, because that would be a... So then... Then your claim would be that probably at any level, the, you know, the set theory analog at a particular computational sophistication level, that all those set theory analogs would have the same property, basically. Right. And that property would imply, what the heck does that property imply about inevitable geometry? Because that property implies that there is a, that property implies that inevitable geometry is not inevitable from the point of view of these analog set theories. Hmm. Because you just can't reach it. You can't prove that the, the geometry is inevitable because you're stuck not knowing if the continuum hypothesis is true and therefore not knowing whether you reach the, the level of the real blanket, so to speak, or whether there's some intermediate thing there. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, it, you know, it's kind of also saying you can't expect to prove. I mean, it might also be a, I wonder whether one could show that you couldn't prove the, you know, in some version of the Grothendieck conjecture that that was unprovable. Yes. That would be yes. the, the, the expected consequence of that. Um, because, and the way that it would be unprovable is that you couldn't, you would be continually asking, oh, there might be, a, essentially what it's saying is, there might be a level of non-randomness that you could identify where it isn't just sort of uniform real realness, so to speak, that you could see some structure there that was below the level that we just say it's the reals. Right. Is that right? I mean, so, so that would be the actual failure of the continuum hypothesis would be there is 
more structure in somehow the, the, the intuition would be there's more structure than just geometry. It's not good enough to just use real positions. There is more information that you can give, which is beyond the information that you can give that would be an integer level thing, but below the inf- below the, the kind of uniformity of the reals. There's, there's, there's some intermediate between algebra and geometry, or you know, between combinatorics and, and geometry somehow. But the very fact that that is possible within set theory is sort of interesting. What does that mean? I mean, that means that within set theory, that's um, uh, what does that mean? Um, I mean, I, go, go ahead. I'm now really so. I mean, sorry. It's it's a very basic point, and, and maybe this is some well known thing that I'm just not familiar with. But like, I, I never really thought about it in those terms before. That 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 the continuum hypothesis. What that there's a computational way, a purely computational way of reformulating the continuum hypothesis. That it's really, or the, you know, the, uh, no, that there. Okay, that there's a kind of. There's a computational way of formulating a sub a kind of sub continuum hypothesis that you know that the real numbers are somehow constitute somehow the smallest set that contains non-computable elements, right? Which is the same thing as the intermediate degrees story, I think. Right. Maybe. Right. I'm not sure it's quite. It isn't actually obviously the same, but it is a related kind of thing. That is, the intermediate degrees story is: does there exist? Undecidability without universality. Right. Um, interesting. Well, I, you know, since we've been yakking on for so long, we should at least look at some of the comments on our live stream here and see what. Um, uh, oh my gosh, let's see. There was a question from ages ago about what does it mean for a causal graph to terminate? And I think we addressed that because that's this whole question about what does it mean? How do you tell that two events? Are equivalent basically, or two states are equivalent. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting right now that that, and maybe this is you know this is another one of these problems that will be solved by by the multi package. But you know, right now we have a notion of you know multi way systems in in the multi way system function have a notion of state canonicalization, state equivalence, and the notion of event canonicalization and event equivalence is just inherited from that. But you again, you can imagine uh, a design where actually there was a different. There were, you know, events could be canonicalized in a way that was different to the way that states are canonicalized. I think Nick has worked on something like that. Yeah, yeah. Nick, is, do you have? <laughs> I think lost. The, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure Nick has worked on something like that. It's part of the the grand design. Um, could observers be thought of? Eli asks. Being like constructors, what's the relationship between an observer and a constructor? I mean, that's certainly the question of what experiments you can prepare is closely related to what things you can observe because you can't prepare things. Your your fingers are, you know, you have kind of have fat fingers that can only, you know, just as your sensors can only sense things to a certain granularity. So your fingers can only make things to a certain granularity, I think. But I don't know whether that is um, I, what I is the. I would that? say they're kind of dual notions, right? They're, they're, they're inverse notions of each other. 
right? The, 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 a, a constructor in the kind of general Deutschian constructor theoretic sense is something that, you know, is something that builds stuff from the ground up out of computation. Whereas an observer is something that takes, you know, a class of, in the Rulia case, a class of all computations and kind of restricts them down. Um, so observers and constructors are kind of two, the, are the two extreme models of actor that can interact with the computational universe and they somehow meet somewhere in the middle. Well, let's take that for a second, because, I mean, an observer, in a sense, the big picture of an observer is there's stuff going on in the world, and the observer's goal is to stuff that stuff into their mind, and their mind is finite. And so they're, they're trying to, you know, grind down all of that detail of the world into a decision like, should we go on with a live stream or not, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, uh, the... Um, and that's so. In other words, it's, it's compressing from this very large amount of data in the world to what exists, kind of what's fittable in a mind. So you're saying constructor is you make a decision. I'm going to do this experiment, and then you're somehow actualizing that in the world by implementing it using. Um, it's a little bit less clear to me how that works. I mean, what is the because. You know, I've tried to think about actual practical experimental observation types of things like pistons and gases and, you know, photoreceptors and eyes and things like this. And they tend to have the feature that a lot of micro details are then, uh, you know, are conflated together to just say the overall pressure on the piston is this. So now in the case of construction, Basically, what you have, you can construct by having pistons. You cannot construct by having little Maxwell's demon thingies, you know, modifying every molecule. And that's, I suppose, the analog of, you know, computationally, that's the analog of saying, um, yeah, I think it's directly analogous. I mean, I think it's more or less... As you say, it's the opposite direction, but I think they are analogous operations. I don't think they're orthogonal operations. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's not like equivalence versus evolution. It's like no, no, no. They're they're, they're they're targeting the same point. They're just doing so from different, yeah, from from different extremes. Right. I mean, construction is can you can you arrange the molecules in a certain way? Observation is uh, can you tell in what way the molecules were arranged? Right. Memes, comments. So observers at the elementary length will observe things quite differently than us. Definitely. But an observer at the scale of the elementary length is very different from us. It's very hard to understand what it would feel like to be such an observer because the, you know, the mechanics of that observer are very different from us. Um, let's see. Uh, Nightmare is commenting, if you took a graph and rotate it, you can have transformations that were once different but converge to something uniform. So you can construct multi-way convergence as rotations of a graph. But I don't know how you, I mean, this is the point, that you you don't get to do a, well, okay, this relates to another thing I've been wondering about. Maybe, Jonathan, you have ideas about this. This is. You know, in space-time, one of the features is that we are slow relative to the speed of light. As observers in space-time, we are 
you know, very much on the mass side, not on the momentum, not on the energy momentum side. Right. Right. In in our friend John Mazuris's view of the world, sort of in principle, we could all be photonic consciousnesses, in which case our view of the world. I haven't actually. I, I need to go on reading the draft book, but um, uh, you know, to know what what he thinks it feels like to be a photonic consciousness, so to speak. But anyway, we're not. We are definitely. We are different from that. We are slow, relative to the, you know, relative to the, sort of that speed. Hmm. What is the analog of that in Branchial space? We're slow relative to the entangled maximum entanglement speed, presumably. Right. What is that? I mean, that's the statement that our that we don't sort of decohere. That you know, even though we decohere very rapidly by our timescales, by the timescales of possible decoherence, we, I guess we don't decohere very rapidly. Okay, so you're saying that the analog of that is, in principle, if we were a photon gas and somebody just took the barriers away, we would just right. be, you know, we would zap or you know, go out to the corners of the universe. And, we, uh, and yeah, and in particular, we would entangle with ver- with a lot of microstates very, very quickly. Um, entangle in spatial in spatial microstates because we're just our photons are just going out and right. populating the universe. Right. Okay. So, okay. So the claim is that one of the facts about us as observers is that that's not happening. Right. Which is the, actually the- probably t- tells us something. You know, I'm still on the hunt for how the properties of us as observers force us to observe all the details of physics. And that's right. another statement. The fact that we are slow relative to the speed of light is another you know, special feature of us as observers. Okay, so right. you're saying we decohere much less rapidly than we could if we were just going out in all directions at maximum entanglement speed. Right, exactly. So what does that mean? That means we stay quantum coherent for longer. We we are more like qubits than we thought we were. Right. Right. So a qubit is the mass as opposed to momentum kind of story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. A qubit is the thing that stays as a as a quantum state. Right. Um and so let's see what would it mean? What does it mean that we maintain quantum coherence what does it mean for us microscopically that we maintain quantum coherence longer than we might otherwise i think it means that i mean if if we just look at essentially like feynman diagrams of the interaction between particles mm-hmm. we maintain coherence when there aren't any interactions yeah i i think it's my I, this is very speculative of course but like my view on it would be that it's it's saying that we you know that we observe only a very small fraction of reality right that you know that, that so what we entangle with is really this is, is really you know that's an that's a conduit to what we can observe um and the point is that at any point in time partly as a result of the fact that we're physically you know that we're spatially localized and partly as a result of the fact that our observational apparatus is not as expansive as it could in principle be the number of microstates that we observe and therefore the number of microstates we entangle with at any given point in time is only a very small fraction of the number of microstates that we could in principle entangle with 
if either we were not so spatially localized or if our observational capabilities were greater or both. Right. I mean, this is the, what, what you're basically saying. Is we're, we're localized in physical space. We have only the point of view about physical space um, that we have sitting on the Earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, we are not as familiar with the with the geography of branchial space. But right. similarly, we are sitting somewhere in branchial space. And that is our current reality. Right. And we could be somewhere else in branchial space, in which case we would have a different reality. But we're and not. If, as we build better experiments, as we build better, more capable measuring equipment and so on, we are increasing our extent in branchial space, right? We we are ju just just as when we build, uh, you know, rockets or whatever, we are increasing our extent in in physical All space. Right. What's the analog of a photon in branchial space? So the the thing that allows us to observe the distant universe is photons, you know, or gravit gravitons or whatever else. What's right. the analog of that in branchial space? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, one can construct, and I, I, okay, I don't know, and I'm not convinced there's a word for it. One can. No, I'm sure there isn't a word for it. This is not a thing that which we know about yet. I mean, there's right. there's probably the analog of gravitational waves. There's some quantum gravitational waves that exist in branchial space that are presumably the analog of of gravitational waves in physical space. Right. I mean, so okay, so all right. There are there are these bounds. Okay, so in quantum mechanics, there is a there is it's not particularly well known, but there is a maximal entanglement speed in quantum mechanics because there's um, there are things like the Margolis Levitin bound and, and other things that allow you to to place bounds on how quickly uh, a given you know how quickly a quantum state can undergo a given unitary transformation given a certain you know certain bound on its energy. Yep. And you could imagine having a system where that because and that bound is a it's it's a non-strict bound, right? You could imagine building quantum systems where that bound is actually inequality, where that inequality becomes, you know, is is achieved that you know the, the the equality case is achieved, and those I guess would be the analog of of photons in branchial space. But I'm not, I don't really know what the what the intuition for those things. Would be. Well, so so hold on a second. So those those bounds, um, uh, just talking to Nolan Margolis just recently about something completely different from his bound. But um, uh, anyway, the the um, uh, how do those work? So this is this is saying um, for a given energy, you're saying there's an e to the i h t that is driving the unitary evolution, mm -hmm. and there's a maximum rate. And how are you measuring entanglement in that situation? So you okay? So so you you take. I mean, you can use any kind of entanglement monotone. I mean, the, the, the standard one would be you take, you know, you've got two subsystems, you partially trace over one, you get a density matrix, you take the von Neumann entropy of that density matrix, that gives you a, a quantification of the entanglement. Okay. Okay. So it's it's the Wait, extent, it, it, yeah, sorry. Which the density matrix is not the extent to which you're filling in density matrix so it's not a pure state. Right. So the, okay. the point is, if you, if you take two maximally entangled states, you know, um, and uh, so the, you know, but the entanglement distance is, is maximal, and then you ask, how quickly can I evolve from one to the other? Um, that evolution is then just from purely linear algebraic reasons. That that variation is uh, the, the oh, sorry the um, the time for that evolution is bounded by the energy of the by the Hamiltonian of the system. 
just because it's e to the iht and that's that's the it's making the phases changing like e to the iht and so you can't yeah. change the phase that quickly without right. having h be big precisely precisely so for yeah so for any given energy scale there's there's a there's a maximum rate at which microstates can become entangled okay and one saying that so so if you had an the photons so if you had an evolution color. operator which yeah. for a given energy was you know maxed out that entanglement rate it would behave in branchial space the way a photon behaves in in um, in space time yeah, but that so the entanglement cone, the thing on the on the okay. So the question is, what kind of thing lives on the surface of the entanglement cone? Right, right. Hmm. What does I mean in um? And are there you know another question is, are there particle-like states in Barshall space? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems likely that there are black hole-like things in branch hill space, which are presumably objective. I mean, I assume that a black hole... What's the relationship between a qubit, inevitable state reduction, and black holes in branch hill space? Yeah. So... You've made this statement before, which I'm not entirely sure I agree with, that there's a, a correspondence between um, qubits and kind of branching or black holes. I mean, I guess, okay, I agree with it in the following sense. I think a branching or black hole, as in like a branching or singularity, would be the extreme case of a qubit that never decoheres. But time, that, that, that's like a time like singularity in space time. Uh, like, like a space like singularity, surely. No, because I mean, the space-like singularity would be the intuition there. Well, okay, this relates again to the, our earlier discussion about whether a space-like singularity represents time ending or time becoming boring. Yeah, but the, but those are you know, with the, with this with modulo time equivalencing functions, those those can be the same thing, right? Right, but whereas whereas a time-like singularity, the thing has. You know, it's just sitting there with no interaction with any other degrees of freedom. Right. Right. So, but, but okay, so that, that's one, you know, the claim, though, would be insofar as, yeah, because, I mean, the, the black hole is the thing from which sort of the light cones can't escape whereas the light cones are maximally escaping from things. Right. And so it's kind of the what is orthogonal to a qubit in some sense. Insofar as light is orthogonal to a black hole, what's orthogonal to a qubit? Yeah, it's something which decoheres maximally quickly. Again, I'm not, I'm not sure that people actually, I think because, you know, often, typically when one's doing quantum information or something what the opposite of what one wants um so again i'm not sure i'm not sure i have good intuitions of what that would be physically well, but, but so decohere i mean isn't measurement the thing that decoheres isn't traditional measurement right right so so if so yeah if you had something that decohered maximally quickly it would be kind of an ideal measurement system in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that it would allow you to observe the greatest number of microstates. Right, except that, except that the point is that traditional measurement 
is like assuming the speed of light is infinite. Traditional measurement assumes the speed of entanglement is infinite. Yes. And in fact, that is the that is the the sort of the difference between our models and you know, that's that's one of the things that might even be a measurable thing. That that traditional measurement would just say, boom, you you measured everything. And that's why, for example, if you had a quantum computer and it spread itself in branchial space with traditional measurement, you just get to say, and now we know everything that happened. Whereas we don't get to say that. We have to right. say, we have to actually go exploring, so to speak. So now the question is, in that case where we're going exploring, what's the thing that allows us to do that at maximum rate? Given the, the, the approximation, it's a Newtonian, it's kind of funny, actually, that it is really quite funny, that the, you know, the traditional quantum measurement is an infinite speed of light Newtonian approximation. Right. So right. now, in the case where one is not making that assumption, what what is it what is the what is the thing that is yes well i don't know i mean that 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 seems like a worthwhile thing to know because because for example there, there will be a question the way that you transmit information across branchial space is it packaged like particles right because in fact the general feeling about motion is that to have pure motion, you have to have something which is, you know, which is packaged so that you can say it changes, it moves without change. Right, right. You need to be able to, yeah, there has to be something you can identify. Right. So do we believe that that's the case in Branchill space? That there well, are I think, things... So, I, I think it's, and I think this is kind of related to your question about, you know, the analog, like the, the Branchial analog of gravitational waves, right? Because... So yes. in the relativistic case, you know, you can, you, one way to think about gravitational radiation is that it's just everything, it's all aspects of the geometry that don't correspond to baryonic matter, right, in some sense, because, you know, the, re, the full curvature tensor decomposes into some, some kind of weird sum of the Ricci part, which is the, really the matter part, and the vial part, which is really the gravitational radiation. So if you just get rid of all the matter terms from, and, and, and you look at the remaining features of the geometry, what you've got is pure gravitational radiation. And so if there's an analog of that for branchial space, it would, yeah, it would imply that the, the branchial space can have a, geo a background geometry that doesn't depend on any, you know, the, uh, that doesn't depend on the analog of the baryonic matter terms in, in branchial space, which would be these, you know, whatever the persistent localized structures are. Um, right, right. So those are, I mean, right, those are the two, that's the, that's the decomposition of the analog of curvature, which we don't really know very well in branchial space. Right. What do we know about curvature in branchial space? I mean, so, you, you've been claiming you've been claiming this this um, double-barreled metric, which I've now forgotten. The, 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 uh, yeah, Fubini Studi. Yes. So, okay. so there, there, yeah, so there is a um, okay. So the only thing that I know um, is that if you build a multi-way system from a quantum mechanical system, which which you know, there's a standard algorithm that lets us do that, right? Where you, you know, every every state vertex in your multi-way system is just an eigenstate. Um, and you look at the branchial graphs of that. Those branchial graphs obviously have a metric because you can compute branchial distances. And that metric is the Fubini Studi metric on the corresponding Hilbert space. Um, so every projective Hilbert space, so projective Hilbert spaces uh, admit a Riemannian structure, 
Actually, they admit that in general, they admit many, but one Riemannian structure that they all admit is the Spubini Studi metric. And so because it's Riemannian, um, it, you know, you can define Einstein equations on it and you can do all the kind of the standard stuff you would do in Riemannian geometry. So at least in those cases, we can claim, you know, we, we can justifiably claim that the you know, branchial space behaves a bit like physical space in as much as it obeys the same kind of continuum equations. Um, that's, I think, all is that, what, what are those continuum? I mean, is that the, those continuum equations with respect to this? Well, well you say the Fubini Studi metric. Is what? Is that the analog of the Minkowski metric? Uh, well, that, that's just the analog of the, of the general space-time metric. So, so the, the, the point is that the, those projective Hilbert spaces all correspond to Einstein manifolds. Okay. So they're, they're all solutions to the vacuum Einstein equations. Okay. And, and they're only vacuum because we've, we've not carved out something that we say is matter. Yeah, exactly. We it, Yes. So, so ju just as with um, you know, this is the analog of the equivalence principle, right? You know, in some sense, the the equivalence principle is enforced in our models in a very direct way because it, you know, it, we we are forced to decompose, as you say, which parts of the graph are matter and which parts are geometry. Um, and the same is true with with branch graphs. And so, right now, we treat everything as geometry because we don't have a good formulation of matter, just as we don't have a good formulation of matter in hypergraphs. Right, but, but I mean, so it does make it really does make this question of when you are communicating decoherence, so to speak, does it come in lumps? Right. Right. So is there a particle? Is there an analog of a particle? Or is decoherence something that is just, you know, yeah, is there quantization in decoherence, so to speak? Right. I mean, it's I mean, not obvious that the, the quantization of particles in our models we think is the result of essentially topology. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm actually going to. I'm going to push back a little bit on your claim that you know to have a notion of to have a concept of motion, you need to have something like particles, because you know even in a continuum fluid model, you can define fluid velocities without the need of any kind of discretization, right? If you just if you so in the, and in the same way, I would argue you could imagine having. And in fact, uh, we did that. I, mean, I would dispute that. I think you have to have a test particle to have fluid velocity. I don't think you can abstractly define the fluid velocity. I think you have to have something which you can say it moves without change. If your test particle always self-destructed, I don't think you could make a fluid velocity. I mean, okay, like I get, so if we take like the Euler equations or something, I, I mean, I guess you could say that the definition of momentum flux, you could recast it in terms of some delta function and you could treat the delta function as like a test particle, but do you really have to do that? Like, Well, it's a question of the observer sitting inside the PDE. I mean, you know, in other words, how do you, I, I wondered about this for a while. I think we even talked about this. The, you know, if you have water, okay, and you're making an observer out of water, what on earth happens? <laughs> what can you, I mean, in other words, it's um, it's one thing to have a solid object. That I mean, how would you measure velocity without having a solid object? Okay, so so all right. Well, okay. I mean, so so in that particular case, you could imagine 
like like this, this happens in shockwave model like in you know in the, when, when you have like shock tube models and things in in hyperbolic pde so if you would imagine just creating a region of higher density or higher pressure in the water um and as long you know assuming you knew the bounds of the container or something you could you could define a momentum flux of that without ever having to introduce test particles and i, I guess what just, I'm saying as soon as you have a shock you have something very much like a particle you have a discrete thing you're measuring yeah okay I mean, I'm not sure. You know, maybe there's a maybe there's a thing. It's like the way you oh. measure actual speed in a you know of a plane or something with pitot tubes uses Bernoulli's principle. I mean, it's not um, and that. So, so here's, you know, here's kind of the intuition that I have in mind, right? So, so if you imagine a, uh, a, a yeah, there was a um, I did this in some papers, and and there was a, there was also a summer school project I proposed a couple of years ago um, uh, that Salvatore Vitalgio did. Which is about you know using uh, vertex density, you know um, uh, connection density as a way of, of introducing scalar fields. So you can imagine taking a graph that's initially just got uniform vertex connectivity, and then you increase the vertex connectivity in some region, and then there's a way that you can extract a kind of you know a, a spatially varying scalar field just by looking at the the deviation of that um, vertex connectivity in that region of the graph from the average. You're essentially doing some kind of over dimension or you know over connectivity uh, right. calculation. Um, and then you could imagine, and in fact, I've, yeah, again, I've constructed these things where, where you, where the, um, that scalar field kind of diffuses through the graph. And so you, and, and that diffusion you can associate or that, you know, that, that, that wave-like, um, movement you can associate with a, with a velocity, right? You can, you can define a velocity of the, of the motion of that scalar field, you, you know, you can define a momentum flux and you can do that without ever really having any. I think persistent localized structure in the graph. Now, I agree from a, from a god's eye view, so to speak. Right, the thing you can clearly do that. I'm just not sure whether you can do it from inside the system. Yeah, probably you can't, and probably the reason or a reason you can't is because to do that extraction, you need to know kind of the boundaries of the um, of the graph, and knowing that. If you're localized inside the system, probably involves something that's equivalent to defining a test particle, I guess. Yeah. But, the, the, I mean, this, coming back to okay, we, we've clearly got a piece of homework here. I mean, I don't know, pretty hard homework, but but um, <laughs> to to figure out, you know, what, you know, what's the analog of particles, gravitational waves, etc., in Branchial space, um, and. Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced that in Rulial space, the analog of particles is concepts. That, you know, to get from, you're, you're packaging things to get from one position, one point of view in, in about the world to another, you have to package it in such a way that it can, can get from one to the other, which of course raises the question, which actually someone was raising on the live stream here about what are Rulial Analogs of gravitational waves. What a Rulial, um, if if um, uh, you know, if concepts are packaged particle-like things, what is the what is the Rulial continuum like? Which is an interesting question, somewhat related to my cats and party hats blog post, which has uh, you know has a version of the Rulial continuum, so to speak. Now that I think, right? About. I mean, the thing that I find quite exciting about that idea is that. It's a there's potentially a way of in, of kind of 
using let me phrase it in a slightly stupid way, but like there's a there's potential there to do the geometrization of functoriality in the following sense, right? So abstractly, what you know, what functoriality is all about is you know translating a concept from one thing to another, you know, one area to another area in a way that distorts some aspects but preserves others. And typically we just, you know, we think of functors as being this purely algebraic thing. Um, and in a sense, you know, in this picture, you've got some concept, some localized structure in, a, in, in the Rouliad and you're kind of translating it somewhere else and you're looking at what things get preserved, what things get distorted. Right. But the Rouliad picture, because it's inherently geometrical or much more geometrical than category theory is by, you know, a priori, you have a kind of geometrical way of thinking about functoriality where you can imagine doing analogs of things like parallel, you can imagine parallel transporting concepts. You can imagine defining curvature yes. in, in that way, right? You're, you're saying how much of the information about this concept gets distorted as I translate it from this region of real space to another. And so, yeah, so there's clearly a kind of geometrical analog of a bunch of these, a geometrical generalization of a bunch of these ideas about functoriality and naturality and, you know, uh, limits and co-limits and things um, where, yeah, you know, you, you're not just saying you, if if you like, you're not just talking about the endpoints as you are with standard functoriality. Where you say I'm translate. I've got this category, and I'm, I'm going to teleport to this category. You actually have to go through the intermediate stuff, and the intermediate stuff has geometry, and the geometry defines somehow locally the deformation of this concept as you as you apply that function. And well, it's a way of thinking that I don't think I've encountered before. Well, but but look, this is the life of the LLM because or, or something like that because in fact. In that that's the idea, you know, in this crazy, I hadn't really properly internalized this, but in this, in this crazy, you know, cats and party hats, uh, you know, continuum change in concept space, that is precisely this. As you go from the cat to the dog in the embedding space for the generative AI, you're basically seeing something which is the analog of what you're talking about. That is a you know, functorial transformation where you see the intermediate steps. You know, the the mapping of cat to dog now has an intermediate. Right. Yeah, it's another one of these cases where you know, just like with computational irreducibility, category theory is this algebraic framework that assumes you can jump from beginning to end, but we know in reality there's a whole bunch of interstitial stuff that you have to go through, and and in and within that there's. A bunch of you know, there's a bunch of interesting stuff that kind of generalizes a load of these category theoretic concepts, and makes them kind of computationally informed. And I guess yeah, the the the, the, the yeah this this LLM case, the the concept deformation case, is the version of that, but for functoriality. Right, and and so in fact, this this notion of interconcept space that I was talking about with cats um, is uh, you know is in fact precisely that. It's it's the thing where you know, as opposed to your teleported jump, interconcept space. In other words, it's like, you know, I don't know, I don't know which science fiction thing has has teleporting, but but uh, you know, many of the popular Star Wars, Star Trek have uh, have the analog of interconcept space. They have interstellar space, so to speak, as opposed right. to just you you walk in a door on Earth and you end up, uh, you know, you walk out in Alpha an Alpha Centauri type type thing. Um, uh, interesting. Okay. Let me see. I'm just going to look at these for a second, and then we should really wrap up. Uh, ah, memes comments. So as massive creatures, we believe certain things happen 
rather than all things. That's an interesting claim. I don't think, I think mass is part of that. I mean, the, the confusing thing about being a photon is, you know, any photon we receive from the cosmic microwave background thinks the universe just started. But but I mean this is but this is precisely I mean the photon is simply the limit. I was going to mention this before when you brought up <laughs> John Mazuris, but you know the pho a photon is is merely the the limiting case of precisely the thing we were talking about before in relation to the hyperruliate, right? That that you know if you're sufficiently computationally bounded, you can't you know you can't tell whether you've fallen into a, sing a space like singularity or whether you've diverged off to future null infinity. Something else that's looking down on you can. But you yourself cannot, and the, and the photon is simply—you know—a photon doesn't know whether it's fallen into a black hole or or, or not, um, and it's it's the kind of it's it's the maximal case of that. Um, so your your point is the photon has so little going on. It's like you you think about it like an ant has a small brain with only fifty thousand neurons, but a photon has an even much smaller brain that really right. doesn't have any idea what's going on. Right. Yes. Right. So so somehow everything is equally interesting to a photon. It, it doesn't, you know, it can't even make the the, the ground level dis discrimination between am I in a black hole or am I am I, you know, diverging off to future null infinity? Um, and right. so, yeah, and in a sense, I would say, I mean, mass does play a role, in as much as, you know, it induces. Okay, so this is this gets back to this interesting question, which we're kind of skating around around, you know, how does the how does how do concepts like mass, momentum, energy translate between causal graphs, multi-way causal graphs, branchial graphs, et cetera, right? There's clearly some interrelationship there. So, you know, mass in the causal graph causes, um, you know, that, that that induces convergence of causal GD6 and induces co a convergence of causal paths. The same is also true in the multi-way causal graph, except with some subtlety that we don't yet fully understand. And that, you know, convergence of GD6 is the completion story. So, you know, because, precisely because a photon is not, you know, it doesn't have mass. It doesn't induce completions. It, it doesn't. You know, it, it can't. It can't do anything. It can't define any non-trivial equivalence function. As soon as you have mass, you have you're inducing convergence of GD six, both causal space-time causal GD six and branch-time GD six, yeah. um, and those are inducing equivalences. And so, it's in some sense, you could say that our you know our ability to define equivalences arises out of our mass somehow. But the precise details of how that works, I think we don't yet know. Well, it's kind of like. Like to know that something happened, you know, to have some view about the continuity of things happening, you can't be skittering away like a photon. If you're skittering away to a different part of space time, or I mean, whatever the photon analog of it, branchial space is, um, that's, uh, yeah. Very interesting. All right. Which is, I mean, which is another way of it's it's a I mean, it's an odd, intuitive, but somewhat intuitive way of thinking about time dilation, right? That that you know, so if you're a photon, you induce no convergence of GD six, so you just follow your path, but you're not equivalenting with any other microstates. So from your perspective, nothing seems to happen. The 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 greater your mass, the more GD six converge, the more microstates get equivalence, the more stuff seems to happen. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the fact that we think anything happens in the world. So basically, the problem for for John's, you know, photonic civilization is nothing would ever seem to happen. Right. Right. I think I think his his thing is, you know, but but maybe it interacts on an interstellar grain. 
and that's but that's a, a pretty watching the universe on pretty fast forward. Um, right, but but I, you know, I, I think the um, the sort of the the whatever the the, mo- the maximally charitable interpretation, I guess, is that you know the, the these creatures of you know the creatures of light thing is a story of what would hyperrulial and hyperrulial civilizations look like, and and what and I mean, sort of to 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 the other extreme, right? So if if there were a hyperrulial civilization and or a hyperrulial civilization in the same universe as us. Yes. How, what would our interactions look like? Yes, um, that's a that's a reasonable way to put it. Okay, I think we have um, we have one last thing here from from glitch. Perhaps state reduction is ultimately the formation of microscopic branchial black holes, the disintegration of a space of quantum sharing, scrambling the entanglement into uncertainty. So I think you know I I do think that Roger Penrose's you know uh, uh, what does he call it Walker? What what is that? The, uh, the orchestrated um, object reduction. Uh, objective orchestrated uh, objective reduction i think okay well i I mean my my conclusion was that that was the analog in branchial space of what roger proved in physical space with the singularity theorems for black holes um and that it was some kind of uh but but that yeah i mean i i don't um i mean it's it's interesting actually that so okay so this is maybe hints at a a, a a deep interconnectedness in in some of Roger's ideas, right? But you know, he he's one of the few people I think who's really tried to pioneer this idea that collapse of the wave function may be gravitational, right? That 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 you know the thing that induces wave function collapse is that you have a mass that exceeds some some value, which is precisely what we're talking about in relation to you know you have enough causal GD six they converge and you know that 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 induces state equivalence. Right, it's really the same idea. Yeah, right. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks very much to everybody for the comments. And Jonathan, as always, a pleasure. And um, uh, um, that was a that was a pretty high idea density. I think we <laughs> we we managed to uh, we managed to get through an awful lot of uh, awful lot of science there. Who knows? It could take years to untangle some of this stuff. That was um, fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Bye to folks on the live stream. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.